Vampire Podcast this week, we reminisce about reminiscence with that film's writer and director, Lisa Joy. And talking of Joy, we have tons of fun talking to Shang-Chi himself, Simu Liu. What a legend. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that just injected Ivermectin, the horse wormer that some people, including some prominent podcast hosts, have been using in the mistaken impression that it will combat COVID-19 straight into our eyeballs. Have there been any side effects? Nay! <laughs> Good lord. Oh, God. <sighs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. And don't worry, folks, I'm in a stable condition. Oh, God. I sense equine humour is mm-hmm. going to become a trend in this podcast. Oh, it's going it's to be like good. a horse in a hospital. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 going to be like um a hurdle that we just can't jump over. Like, oh no! Uh, I, anyway, I got my uh, I got my avermectin from a fence. A fence. No. Mm-hmm. Anyway, welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I am joined by not one, not two, but three colleagues of such lethal cunning. You've heard a couple of them already. As ever, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello, Helen O'Hara. How are you? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you're desperately searching for a fact, aren't you? No, I have a fact. Um, I'm actually checking something else. Oh, you're just distracted? Yeah. Okay, that's James's job. James is the one who usually does listen to me. Hey. <laughs> now, speaking of James, we're also joined by our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. I'm here for now. I may be gone very, very soon because my broadband has been up and down like a yo-yo uh, over the past 24 hours. And there's every, every possibility that I will suddenly vanish like like that. He's gone, like Kaiser Soze, at any point during the podcast. Sorry, what was that, James? I wasn't listening. Can you just repeat that? <laughs> <sighs> sorry, I, sorry I'm, I know I'm hard to understand. My voice is a little hoarse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's only a little hoarse. Uh, anyway, if James's broadband does the Lord's work and removes him from the podcast, then we'll have no choice but to soldier on. That's what we do. It's what we do. We leave. We, we unlike the um, unlike the U.S. Army uh, or the Navy SEALs, we do leave a man behind on the leave no podcast. Nerve behind. <laughs> leave no nerves <laughs> behind. Uh, and joining us for the first time for a full show after a cameo last week in the reviews section is Katie Smith Wong. Hello, Katie. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Uh, no, not a problem. Not a problem. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ex- super excited. Um, today because tonight is the Q&A with Quentin Tarantino at Alexandra Palace. So I'm super excited to attend that. I'll be geeking out towards the very back. Right so at the very back. Very, right, right at the very back. But, you know, in the room. So that's what counts. Okay. In the room where it happens. Yeah. Is anyone else going? where it happens, yes. Uh, I'm sure loads of people will be going. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be weird if it was just you. Just you and you're sitting at the very back of the room. Yeah. I know. That'd be weird. Any questions for Quentin? Then you have to shout really loud. What was uh, what was the light in the briefcase and pulp fiction? If they can't hear me, that means that I have to go much, much closer. So you know, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. I'm otherwise engaged. Tonight. I'm going to see something else. You are, and I'm very jealous of you. Are you? But you saw something else last night that I'm. I did, and it was of. good. And you should be jealous of me. Okay. I don't know what either of you are talking about. No, no, well, you saw not. something good on Friday, so, you know. Oh, I did. I did there see something go. very good you, on Friday. You guys see all the That's cool true. stuff. I just, you know, get what's left. <laughs> You're going yeah. to see Quentin Tarantino tonight. It's oh, all good. Oh, yeah, that's good. true. 
Thank you for reminding uh, so me. This week has been bounteous in terms of, of screenings, in terms of uh, films and TV stuff. Like my watch list overfloweth at the moment with exciting things. It's 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 a good time to be alive and a bad time for my internet to go down. Yes, yeah, a very bad time, but don't worry. <laughs> James is still with us so far, and that means we're going to barrel straight into the three-fact structure, which always comes back in the podcast whenever we have three colleagues of such lethal cunning. In case you don't know what it is, it is a occasional segment in which my three colleagues of such lethal cunning try and impress me with an obscure, unusual or arcane movie fact and I give a point to the winner. Katie, as you're making your debut in the three fact structure, I'm going to come to you first. What do you have? Oh, the pressure. Well, as we all know, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is coming out um, when is it? Yes, <laughs> tomorrow. Sorry, I'm losing track of days at the moment. It's However, fine. today as people listen to this, or yesterday if they're listening to it on Saturday. Thank you. And so, <laughs> <laughs> my fact is related to one of the side characters that appears towards the end of the film. We see an elderly gentleman who is actually played by renowned artist Yunhua, who some film fans may or may not know was a former classmate of Jackie Chan and Sammo Hong, also renowned martial artists. But other film fans may also know him from Kung Fu Hustle as the landlord. Ah, that's where I knew him from. That's it. All right. Okay. Interesting. So uh, I wonder if there's cameos that got studded all the way through. Might need to go back and rewatch it again. Oh, no. Oh, no. Must rewatch a Marvel movie. Oh, what a misery. (laughs) All right. Decent fact. Decent fact. Uh, who's next? Jimbo. My fact is about Risa fans. It's actually not at all about Risa fans, but it's Risa fans adjacent. And that's the important thing, because my fact is about Rasputin, the mad monk, uh, otherwise known as the, shall we say, bad guy from the upcoming The Kingsman. But I want to talk about the real Rasputin, the real mad monk, and the lasting impact that Rasputin has had on cinema. So... You may or may not recall the movie Rasputin and the Empress, uh, which dates all the way back to... What? What? Why are we laughing? What's funny about Rasputin and the Empress? I love it. You have never seen that film. Of course I haven't. Of course I haven't seen it. I never claimed to have seen it. It came out in 1932. I I can watch it. I just love the balls of the... You may or may not recall a movie I have literally never heard of until I googled it two minutes ago. Shut up, Chris. Pay no attention to the twat behind the curtain. Um, You may or may not recall one of my favourite films, Rasputin and the Empress, which came out in 1932. Such a good film. Such a good film. It's so good. Love the Empress. Oh, the chase sequence is amazing. So, <laughs> so Rasputin and the, and, and the Empress came out, and it was the subject of a lawsuit. So in the film, the character of uh, Natasha is supposed to sort of very loosely represent uh, Princess Irina Alexandrovna of Russia. Uh, and she sued MGM for libel after the film came out. Okay. Uh, And basically, the idea was that in the film, Natasha is raped by Rasputin. And she claimed that she was being defamed by this being portrayed in the film. And a jury agreed with her 
And she was awarded in a British court £127,000, which adjusted for inflation is about two and a half million in damages. And then she was also given a settlement of $1 million, equivalent to about $19 million in today's money, in an out-of-court settlement with MGM because the court said she had been thoroughly defamed by this film. And obviously, this set a rather dangerous precedent. And the film starts with a kind of, uh, with, a, with a title card, which says, which, of course, you will remember having seen the film. But it starts with the title mm, card, yeah, which says, this film concerns the destruction of an empire. A few of the characters are still alive, and the rest met death by violence. And the court said if they hadn't had that on the front of the film, actually, they'd have been significantly less fucked than they ultimately were. But it was a defamation suit. They were, they, you know, it went badly for them. And as a result... As a result, they started putting all persons in this film are fictitious and pay no resemblance to characters living or dead in films. And this is where it originates from. It comes from this lawsuit, which was brought about because of Rasputin. The, of course, the thing that they don't mention in any of this is that the woman who sued for love on her hus- husband fucking killed Rasputin, let's not forget, in their fucking house. So it's not as if she was eventually clean or anything. Eventually, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. Um, <laughs> was eventually. it in the house or was it outside when they drowned him? Well, like, which well, of the My understanding it? is that her husband tried to poison him with muffins and that didn't work, then tried to poison him with wine and that didn't work, then shot him in the chest, then went off and did something came back got attacked by semi-zombie rasputin and then he went outside and then they shot him in the head and at that point he was more definitively dead yes but uh, so it wasn't for lack of trying but yeah but so rasputin is indirectly responsible for that legal disclaimer that we now see in films the mad monk's legacy lives on wow ra ra rasputin indeed I would also like to quibble with the uh, the details of what you said, because my information is that the out-of-court settlement with MGM in New York was $250,000, not a million dollars, as you have said. So, Chris, I, I put it to you right here and right now that Wikipedia wouldn't lie to me. I'm on the same Wikipedia page. <laughs> 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 You're saying I'm misreading wow. it. As your no, lawyer, hang on, James. Hang on, lawyer. hang on, hang on. I'm going to read you the line. All right. Awarded $127,373 in the English Court of Appeal, and then a $1 million out-of-court settlement with MGM. The, the page, the page for this, the page, which relates specifically to the all-person's fictitious disclaimer. Well, see, I'm on the page for my beloved film, Rasputin and the... <laughs> and that says she won an award of $127,373 in an English court yes. and an out-of-court settlement with MGM reportedly of $250,000 in New York. Well, it seems that these Wikipedia pages contradict each other, which means mm. one of them is presumably wrong. Mm. So for erroneous Almost facts, yours. James may have disqualified himself. That was just gravy for the fact. That was not the substance of it. I think my fact was fabulous. <laughs> it was very Helen, good, James. I well dare done. you to get a mad monk into your fact. No, but I do have a, a, a giraffe wearing a gas mask. Okay. Um, I'll this, uh, well, I technically don't, but I kind of do. This is about Salvador Dali, because you know I love Dali's stories about what he did in Tinseltown or didn't do. And when he was visiting uh, Hollywood in 1937, he met up with Harpo Marx and he proposed to him a movie, a, a Marx Brothers movie called Giraffes on Horseback Salad. You should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. <laughs> well, he did. Um, and it would have included a scene of giraffes wearing gas masks and one of Chico Marx sporting a deep diving suit while playing the piano. Dali <laughs> wanted Cole Porter to write the score, and he hoped that it would surpass even the biological, hysterical and cannibalistic frenzy of animal crackers. 
Wow. Yeah. Sadly, however, while Harpo was a big fan and thought this was a great idea, uh, Groucho was not on board and said it wouldn't play. So the film never got made. But Giraffes on Horseback Salad, it's still out there, guys. You know, anybody listening in Hollywood. How would that have worked? How would you get a gas mask on a giraffe? With a ladder. Or just get a giraffe to bend down. They are famously accommodating. Mm. Never cross a giraffe. They will mess you up. Yeah, they will. Eventually. I, I think you're thinking of hippos. No, no, mm. it's definitely giraffes. They've got Is height advantage, Helen. Always got a height advantage. If you inject giraffe wormer, does that cure COVID-19? Again, no. We've been through this, Chris. Cures your neck ache, though. Mm, don't think so. All right. Okay. Well, uh, further experiments may need to be carried out. <laughs> See how it goes. Uh, anywho, anywho, those were three good facts. Uh, James violated Helen's territory of, by talking about a movie that was made in the 1930s. <laughs> Helen is absolutely furious about it, and she's going to be even more furious in a second because James has won this That's week's yeah. three facts structure. Monk power! Fact. It was a good fact. <laughs> that is what Rasputin famously shouted at whatever he did. <laughs> I am Rasputin, and I have done this. <laughs> Monk power. <laughs> Helen, I will say, like, if you're going to roll out the Salvador Dali fact, you can't really top the Dune one, which I know you've already done before. Yeah, but he did, was nearly did the Padishah yeah. Emperor Shaddam the Fourth. Indeed. Helen, have you ever thought about doing a podcast uh, called The Daily Dali? In which you, you <laughs> just, just Dali say fights a fact. all the time. Yeah. He's not even my favourite Spanish artist, you know what I mean? Like oh, it's I, he just has good stories. He's no El Greco, is he? Come he's on. no El Greco. Who, I know people monk. are gonna look sorry, people are shouting at their podcast listening device right now. I, I know he's not Spanish, but he kind of is. He was adopted by Spain, all right? So just don't even give me that. Thank you. Just like me, he was adopted by Spain. Everyone has an El Greco, Helen. Yours just happens to be, the <laughs> Yours just happens to be <laughs> an angry man who wants to kill us. Yeah. A guapo, I think you'll find, but okay. <laughs> yes. Anywho, anywho, uh, that is it for this week's Three Facts Structure. Who knows when it will return? Well, actually, I do know when it will return. It will return next week uh, whenever we're doing our bespoke one-off live show as part of the London Podcast Festival on the 11th of September, Saturday evening at King's Place in London. There are still some tickets on sale for that, so if you want to come along and see the four giggling idiots and a star guest whose name shall not be revealed and not because I don't know who it is. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's madness. <laughs> what? I've got these guests locked in. Of course I have. I keep them in a dungeon. <laughs> it helps. I, I can't help feeling I should have saved my Rasputin fact for the live podcast. Perhaps you should have done, but now you're going to have to come out dressed as Rasputin. Everyone listening to this podcast, you have one week to seed me with an exciting fact for the live oh podcast. So please, please feed me your very best facts. For the love Twitter. of God, people, do not seed James Dyer. <laughs> oh, no. Don't do it. Or DM Don't me on it. Instagram so Chris can't see. That's even better. Slide into his DMs, folks. That's it. Slide bearing a fact. Yes, but no, no seed. No sliding. Yes. Slide, but no seed. That's, oh, no, that's the That's the DM's rules. Uh, anyway, we are doing a live show next week at the London Podcast Festival. You can come along and see it in the flesh, and we would love to see you there. We would love to uh, obviously sell out and, um, you know, and be bathed in applause and warmth whenever we come on stage. Not 
when we appear on stage. And uh, so if you want to do that, you can go to kingsplace.co.uk to pick up your tickets. And if you can't make it in the flesh or you don't want to because of the pandemic and stuff, uh, don't worry, COVID protocols are in place at King's Place, but I can understand your wariness if you are indeed wary. And if you do want to see the show, then it's going to be available as a live stream as well. So you can pick up your pass to see it either live or in the coming days after the show. It will not be available it will not be available as a podcast, folks. It is like last year's. It is like last year's a one-off show. Our live podcast will not be a not podcast. Be a podcast. Yes, our live podcast from the London Podcast Festival will not be a podcast. Just to make that one hundred percent clear, does a podcast have to be cast to be a podcast? I mean, it's not in a pod. So, what is what is a podcast? Quite. And while you're while you're musing on that. Let's go straight in to this week's listener question. Give us a chance to muse on something for once. And this is a belter. This is a belter of a question. And uh, I think also because of the context behind it. So it comes from at Annalie Lats Me on Twitter. Uh, she got in touch this week to say that, uh, and I hope you're okay with me sharing this, uh, Annalie. Earlier this week, I had therapy for my lifelong snake phobia which ended in me actually touching a real-life snake and letting it crawl on the floor around my feet. I hope it was non-venomous. And as part of the treatment, I meant to watch films of snakes. So I was wondering what the best movies with snakes in them are. Annalie goes to mention, obviously, Indiana Jones mm. and Romancing mm. the Stone are at the top of the list. But what else? Well, I was going to say Indiana Jones, to be honest, so thanks for spoiling my thunder. We can talk about that. We can, we can go into detail with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I think, I think it is, you know, it's weird, but I think the, the best snake film is the one about the snake phobic, um, who uh, hates them, hates snakes. And um, we start off with one early in the film, obviously, when he's fishing it out of the, uh, the, the plane as it's taking off. Um, and then we have that incredible scene with all of the asps in the Well of Souls. So it kind of feels like that's pretty definitive. I know that there are obviously, you know, more snake scenes in later Indiana Jones films. You know, there's the big sort of anaconda in the circus train at the beginning of Last Crusade. But uh, but yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a really hard one to beat. I too have a phobia of snakes. Mm. Genuinely, I have a really, really, yeah, I have a huge, huge fear of snakes. And uh and it's it's bad to the point where if I am reading a book like um like an encyclopedia or if I'm reading a newspaper or even if I'm online, and this is going to end with lots of people sending me things on Twitter. I just know it is, but please please don't do that. Uh, if I unexpectedly see a picture of a snake, I jump and mm. I have to turn the page really really quickly, as if the snake is somehow going to come alive and bite me. But I also have focused and funneled that fear of snakes into a lifelong just well, not obsession but I've I learned I've learned a lot about snakes over the years mm. and I've I watch a lot of snake documentaries and I read a lot of books about snakes and to uh, arm so know your enemy <laughs> is what I would say and I remember uh, doing a junk at a comic-con for snakes on a plane uh, whenever it came out, just before it came out, so it would have been around 2006 and I was doing a round table uh, with Sam Jackson and he had a snake with him and he was sitting right next to me and even though it was just a just a a little non-venomous snake i can't remember what type it was now i was 
slightly wary. And I said that. I said, look, I, I, I actually said to them, I said, I, I really don't like snakes, but I'm fascinated with them. You know, and I, you know, I said, I know a lot about them, so know your enemy. And he looked at me as if I was insane. <laughs> like, it's like, why would you want to know so much about something that you don't like? Which I guess is a very, very good and pertinent question and one I don't really entirely have the answer to. But, uh, but yeah, so anything in, in a movie as well, anything like with with snakes in the film, so that that I can absolutely get on board with with Indiana Jones and his aversion to snakes. It's mm-hmm. just one of the many attributes that he and I share, <laughs> and uh, that sequence where he falls down in the well of snows and the cobra rises up. Yeah, that's oh. uh, that's one of my that's amazing. But I like, love I'm that. Not, scene. I'm not a, a phobic proper, but that is very scary. Even if like to me the as glass well, window you know? is very very visible. It's not that. Bad. I don't know. You, there, there is a later part in the Well of Souls where you see the snakes crawling out of the skeletons. Yes. That one for me is terrifying. Yeah. When they're going through the socket of the of the skull. Mm. Yeah, or out well. of the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I I do have a friend who's who's phobic like you, Chris, and um, I took her to see the Lost World Jurassic Park, and she said, "Are there snakes in this?" And I said, "No, there's just dinosaurs. I think I don't I don't think there's any snakes. There weren't in the last one." And then there's that bit where they're hiding in the cave from the Tyrannosaurus attack, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a, a, a snake appears out of a crevice in the rock behind someone's shoulder <laughs> yes. and crawls down over their shoulder, and that person obviously panics and, and runs out and gets eaten by the T-Rex. Um, but my friend just started shaking, hit her head, like, and and was shaking, and you know, sort of curled up on herself for about five ten minutes. Like, it's a real, genuine, serious phobia that really, really hits people hard. So. Um, I might even have some sympathy for you, Chris. Just a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. A little yeah. bit of sympathy. That's actually you- taken from the book, isn't it? That's from the original Jurassic Park book. Oh, that right. sequence it was one of the ones that was that. that was held back for the Lost World. There's certainly a bit in a waterfall. Mm-hmm. There may not be a there may not involve a snake. But but yeah, the uh, the Indiana Jones uh, connection with snakes is runs all the way through. Uh, all three films, no, including the fourth one, including Kingdom of the oh Crystal God, Skull. The, there's a the there's a bit of a snake in that as well. Oh, that yeah. is just the worst. Yeah. Oh God, I forgot about that. Indeed. Uh, who can forget? Of course, Snake Surprise in Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Last Crusade, as Helen mentioned, has a has a big old. Is that meant to be an anaconda? Then I think it's an anaconda. It's in water. Okay. So I thought. Maybe okay, anaconda. that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Big old snake, but of course it it tells us where Indy gets his phobia of snakes, which is when he because he's he's totally unafraid of snakes initially, the River Phoenix Indy, and then he falls into a pit of snakes on the circus train, and they're squirming and all yeah. all over him. So uh, yes, that is the moment where he just shits his pants and never wants to see a snake again, and quite rightly quite so. Quite rightly so, yeah. The greatest snake moment of all time is in Hard Target, and I think we could just end this conversation here because a snake, oh, <laughs> a snake is about to bite someone. Jean-Claude grabs a snake, punches it repeatedly in the face, and then bites off its rattle. It's a rattlesnake. And that is the greatest snake moment of all time. Thank you and good night. See, why would he bite off the, the, the rattle? Well, because he uses it as a trap yeah, to make it so it doesn't make head? a noise. And then, he, he, and then he sets it as a trap for the people following him. So he bites off the oh, rattle so it doesn't uh, make a noise, and then it bites one of the bad guys. But it only agrees to do that after he punches it repeatedly in the face. Is, is that how that worked? It agreed it to do it that agreed on the after he punched it repeatedly. <laughs> Mm. As the cordial agreement, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah. I guess. Okay, Katie, do you have a do you have any moments I you want to throw in? I have a couple. Thanks to James, who's reminded me. Um, one is in Kill Bill Volume mm. Two. Mm. You have the scene in the trailer where it's a complete element of surprise, and it just left that lingering, impending doom. And then the second one is in Enter the Dragon, where there is a snake. Be- before the, the the fight, 
in the in the factory. Brucey is very quiet. He manages to grab a cobra, slide it into a bag, and then use it later on without any noise or anything. So it's just um, those, those stuck in my those moments stuck in my mind because it's one of the few things. It's like because he entered the dragon had that kind of secret agent vibe, and it's one of the very few moments where he's not acting covertly. He's just do, he's just controlling the situation. Hmm. That's a good one. I also love that Kill Bill scene. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's tremendous. So that, that involves a black mamba. And uh, anyone who knows anything about snakes, the, oh, the black mamba's a real man stopper. <laughs> that, that, oh, that is for sure. Wow. Yeah. And uh, scary stuff. I would not want to be on a set with black mambas. Nick was on set of Cowboys and Aliens years ago. And they were shooting out in, I think, New Mexico. And they were shooting out in the desert. and there was a guy whose job it was to basically catch rattlesnakes mm. and make sure that they were nowhere near the cast and crew. And so Nick has a picture on his phone of the guy had a big old blue plastic bin and he just had rattlesnakes in there. Yeah. I was at the Grand Canyon once staying on a ranch. There were cowboys. They sang to us around the fire. It was amazing. Anyway, and- uh, <laughs> shadow on the plane. They didn't know that. I requested it. I had to try and sing it for them. Anyway. Um, but we were out riding one day and we heard a rattle and the guy had to radio the ranch to get them to come out in the sort of little buggy thing um, to pick up the rattlesnake. It was, a, I think, a, some kind of greenback. I can't remember the exact name. Anyway, so they had a they had a, had a sort of snake sanctuary at the at the ranch, but that was so they could keep them in cages in boxes and away from, you know, the people and the cows and everything else. Uh, mm -mm. No, uh -uh. no, thank no. you. No, thank you. Mm -mm. No, and our, our the horses were freaked out, and I'm not exactly a horse rider, so it was not a fun. How did you guys feel about Conan the Barbarian when you first saw it? Like when James Earl Jones literally turns into a snake? Oh God! Because <laughs> if you're going to encounter a snake, let it be the James Earl Jones snake. Well, wouldn't it? I'd rather meet the snake lady from the Golden Child if we're going that way. Ah, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a good one. She was that's cool. a good one. Technically, she's half dragon rather than half snake. Just yes, true, true, true. I don't know. It's it's. I don't know. Giant man snakes. Um, I'm okay with you know because you could by and large get away from them. It's the it's the small nippy fuckers that will get you. I'm not happy about that. There was an episode of Tales of the Unexpected that has lived long in my memory, and um. I can't remember. Here's the irony of I can't remember what the episode is or what it's <laughs> called, but it was about a guy, uh, a, a nasty guy, who I think, if memory serves me right, was played by Gavin O'Hearlihy, who was uh, in Superman 3 as well. I think it was him. And he's in India and he's a nasty guy and he has done someone wrong. And so, as revenge, they have planted a crate in his house and a crate is a type of cobra and he sees it and he's basically stalked by this thing all the way through the episode and um i won't tell you how it ends but you know these things usually have a sting in the tail or a bite in the tail so it's uh but that one's lived long in my in my memory uh, as indeed mainly because of the unexpected appearance of the snake when you least expect it suddenly oh my god there's a snake and so for that reason there's two moments that have really lived with me as well. There's the player, 
Robert Altman's The Player, where um, you have an unseen figure who is trying to torment and intimidate Tim Robbins' movie executive. And one of the ways he does so is by putting a rattlesnake in Tim Robbins' car next to him. And if I remember rightly, it's under a bucket with a picture of a rattlesnake on it. And Tim Robbins picks it up and then lifts up the bucket and there as he's driving along in LA traffic and there is a rattlesnake and it's not happy. And so he tries to get away from that. And there's something similar in Race with the Devil, which is a movie I've talked about a number of times on the podcast here, but it's a cracking little 1970s, very dark, very twisted 1970s thriller about uh, two couples who are on a sort of just vacation and they stumble upon a satanic ritual and then the rest of the movie is then being hunted by the satanists and one of the the key sequences in the movie is they come back to their rv and the satanists have broken in and have placed a couple of rattlesnakes in and around the the mobile home and they don't really know where they are and so that is whoa that is Mm. very tense very very tense indeed Anything where there's a snake in the room and people don't know is always... Mm. <sighs> has to be said. So, you know like how there'll always be one movie, one video nasty that you watched when you were way, way, way too young, which traumatised you for years to come. Mine was actually Creepshow too, but one of the other ones I saw. Did you ever see the Will Wheaton <laughs> horror movie, The Curse? It's like 87? Well, anyway, no. so it actually spawned a series of sequels. I think there are four of them. Uh, and they are, they're, they're, they're curse in name only. Like the, the sequels are not the same cast they're not related thematically plot like they have absolutely nothing in common whatsoever other than the title but the second one curse to the bite stars j eddie peck as this guy who gets bitten by a radioactive snake obviously and begins to spawn <laughs> sort of snakes and turn into a snake so little snakes like, like egg sacks of snakes come out of the snakes his arm turns into a snake and he turns into a big snake it's just horrible and the thing i remember most is at one point someone gets pushed backwards and their head strikes like the corner of a door jam and like they slide down it and it's oh it's so horrible i've never ever forgotten this film it traumatized me so much i was so young when i saw it i had no business watching it but i had a friend of mine who was really into these things and he knew someone at the video store who would give us 18s when we were like nine so um yeah the bite curse to the bite don't watch it if you don't like snakes and if you do like snakes still don't watch it because it's fucking terrible All right. Well, let's wrap this up then. Uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of other ones. Harry mm. Potter. Oh, yeah. Can speak Chamber of Secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although technically that's a basilisk. Yes, but there is the bit in the first in one. Philosopher's yeah, Stone, isn't it, where he discovers snake. that he can yeah. speak. And also in Chamber of Secrets, yeah. they have that, like one of them conjures a snake, doesn't he, when they're doing like wand training and Kenneth Branagh freaks yeah. out and Harry Harry persuades it not to kill someone. Harry talks to yeah. it. Yeah. Well, isn't, isn't Nagini a snake? Nagini is a snake. Nagini is a snake, mm. yeah. So there you go. There's a snake that actually has uh, an arc. <laughs> I mean, no. Also, we've not mentioned Anaconda because you haven't seen a snake unless no. you've seen it yeah. fight Owen Wilson. I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, look, I, 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 I like everybody in that film uh, mostly, <laughs> maybe with one exception. But still, even I won't claim that's a great it's snake no Lake movie. Placid. Even though it's literally a, a, a movie about a great in, in the Come sense of on, large guys. snake. The Anaconda swallows John Foyt <laughs> whole, and then it regurgitates we've him. All wanted to do that, and then he winks yeah. at J Lo. I mean, that is, I mean, yeah, as his dying yeah. act, he does a little, little wink. you got to give camera. it credit for that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great snake moment. Okay. So we've lost James. James is gone. Presumably either his internet got him or a massive snake got him. I did send a black mamba his way today. So I don't know. We'll see if he's back for the live show next week. 
who knows? But anyway, before we wrap up this listener question section, I'm going to throw in one more, uh, which is Live and Let Die. Roger Moore, James Bond. Uh, he's in his bathroom, turns around, and there's this snake slowly slithering towards him. And it's uh, about to bite him. Doesn't like that, mm-hmm. does he? So what does he do? He blow torches the fuck out of it. No animals were harmed in the making of this segment, and hopefully no animals were harmed in the making of Live and Let Die. But he does jump on some crocodiles later on as well. So crocodiles or alligators he jumps on. Either way. Alli- either way. Alligators, yeah. Alligators. Southern US, right? Yes. So he jumps on some alligators later on, torches a snake. Quite frankly, he has it up to here with reptiles. He just doesn't like them. Doesn't like them. What a get. Also to add, the coffin of snakes towards the end of the film. Yes. Yes. Trouser snake. We haven't mentioned uh, Ryan Reynolds' trouser snake and buried. It's a spoiler, but also it exists. I, I mean, literally a snake in his trousers. I'm not. I'm not talking metaphorically. I was going to say because we're talking about trouser snakes, and uh, you've made the connection well. from James Bond, and you've gone straight to uh, trouser snakes. And, I made the connection uh, the via coffins. Yeah, it's <laughs> another one. My God, that thing will swallow you whole. Uh, right, yes, I'd forgotten about that. Mm. Blimey. Okay. Ryan Rodney Reynolds' trouser snake in Buried. I think that might be it. We may have a winner. <laughs> of course, you know, there's a Ryan Reynolds' trouser snake in each of his movies. We just don't always see it. See it. Yeah. Yeah. Wise but words. it's there. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, and why the hell would you want to? Uh, but if you do want to do that, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Really, Twitter is the only show in town right now. Slide into my DMs, I'm at Chris Hewitt, or reply to any of my tweets, or wait for a panicked shout-out every now and again. But once again, thank you so much to Annalie for sharing that story about her snake phobia, and we hope that things are getting better. And maybe put me in touch with your snake guy, because uh, maybe I can cure myself of my phobia as well. And while I'm at it, get over my fear of heights, crippling fear of heights. You uh-huh. do, yeah. The thing is, I encounter heights quite a lot. Snakes less so. Uh, Jimbo has left. Jimbo has left. His internet got him. And so uh, I was counting him to set up the next bit, which is an interview with Lisa Joy, who is the writer and director of Reminiscence. Lisa Joy, of course, is along with her husband, Jonathan Nolan, the creator of Westworld and is a very, very, very smart cookie. Indeed, uh, as, as is evidenced by Reminiscence, which is a kind of old fashioned mind mangling big old movie star centric thriller that we keep being told they don't make anymore. And it is still playing in cinemas right now. Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, Tandy Wayne Newton. Look at them. They are amazing. Walk around them. Uh, it's in cinemas right now. We are doing a spoiler special for it. And when Lisa Joy came into London uh, recently, she and James sat down for a big old spoilerific natter. That is going to be available on the spoiler special, which is going to be up early next week for spoiler special subscribers. But they also did a non-spoiler chat. And that is what you're about to listen to now. I haven't heard it yet. I don't know what they talked about. It could be 14 minutes of nonsense. Let's hope it is. Here we go. James talking to Lisa Joy. In joy. Oh, no. It's a lovely, lovely thought, just the kind of idea of existing in memory. Do you know what I mean? Just that sort of, because it's what a lot of people do, especially as they get older, isn't it? They say that yeah. uh, you measure that you're getting old when, you're, when your memories outnumber your dreams, uh, which oh, I think is wow, a really lovely. That is a lovely it. line. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a funny thing because people, uh, it, it's kind of like Hollywood sells the idea of romance and being unrealistic. And in some ways, the entire three act structure and narrative is 
an unrealistic template for life, although it seems almost a priori in terms of storytelling, because it, 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 it's like there's an introduction, there's a climax, and then there's a denouement. But by the denouement, you kind of understand what it was all about, you know, and, and that's where the meaning comes. You get the meaning at the ending. Uh, and that's a, that's a good format for a book or a script, but it's actually not how life works. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't get a magical bucket of answers at the end. And in fact, by the time you reach the end, whenever that is, you're often a very different person than you were in the middle or the beginning. And so meaning must be extrapolated as time progresses. And one moment has no greater value than the next. You know, and so that's why this idea was was kind of compelling to me was, uh, you know, when I, I remember when I was a child, I'm just meandering now because I've oh, had no sleep. Meander but, away. Uh, <laughs> I remember once looking in the mirror in my mom's and dad's bedroom. I must have been about seven. And I remember taking a mental snapshot of myself and saying, remember this moment, remember what it feels like to be lying in this position, staring at yourself upside down in the bed, uh, in the mirror as you hang off the bed. And remember that when you reflect back on this moment, that you were fully formed, and that you weren't some simple child with simple thoughts and ideas, <laughs> because one day you're going to be a grown up and you're going to condes condescend to the person you are now. And so it's like, me in the past and you to lecture me in the future <laughs> about being condescending to me in the past. And it, it, it formed such a vivid memory. I really locked it in in that moment. And, and that's always kind of informed my worldview, not to mention how I raise my kids. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I can't deny you your full personhood in, in this moment and uh, the full range and um, import of of your ideas. Uh, so uh, it somehow all ties into this film. <laughs> I mean, do you apply that to characters as well? Because the characters feel very vibrant. They have a very sort of vivid inner life. And it kind of feels a little bit like that level of respect is kind of applied to them as well. Like they're not just fulfilling a role in a narrative. They're living, breathing, sentient constructs. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the fun that I had with this was, you know, you're taking the trappings of a noir in some ways and saying, well, that that's not that's not all there is to a person, you know, a noir and, and, and tropes of who characters are, a femme fatale, a protagonist. Those are just shorthand ways of of feeding us an idea about a person. But, you know, as as culture progresses and as art progresses, you are able to expand more and more on that shorthand and subvert it and go even deeper if you, if you can. And so for me, this was about characters who presented as, say, a traditional hero or a traditional femme fatale. But once you got to know them, you realize no one is just this one thing, you know, they, that you're a complete, vibrant, full person who contains multitudes. And the mystery of this is about traveling inwards and through time in order to see those multitudes. And in a way, the only way the guy can get the girl is by seeing her fully, mm. by understanding her fully so he can understand what happened to her and where she went. It's, in my idea, a truer version of what a love story is, right? It's not just about, oh, I found you over here. <laughs> you know, I've, I've obsessively chased around and, and there you are. It's about 
uh, it doesn't matter where he goes ex- on the exterior. I mean, it does. And there's a lot of fun fight scenes and such, but he's never going to find her without fully, fully mm. seeing her in all her complexity. It it feels a little bit like an allegory for just like relationship advice. You know what I mean? Like it's so many times you see this in films and in real relationships where one partner is projecting an image of what they think the other partner is upon them instead of actually taking the time to discover who they are. And this, the story is one of discovery. Like he thought he knew who this person was, but it was all projection. And then he has to actually find out who May is as a person. Yeah, I think that all of us, every single one of us can be guilty of having gaze of the other, you know, mm. um, and, and trying to pigeonhole them or keep them in a stasis, you know, of like, okay, well, this is the person I met and this is my preconceived notion. And don't, don't waver from that because that will blow my mind. Um, I, I know a lot of times, especially as a woman, you have to deal with that, you know, uh, even in terms of wardrobe and what you wear, they say you you can't undo your first impression, right? Yeah. You f- spend the rest of your life battling that. And so this is very much about the gaze of the other upon us and society's expectations upon us and how to um, almost assert your personhood despite that gaze. You know, May learns to use the um, sexualized and reductive gaze of people upon her as her own weapon. You know, it's a kind of um, it's a kind of switcheroo of that, and and trying to use it to empower herself um, instead of getting diminished. And similarly for for Hugh's character, I really wanted to unpack this idea of a male hero as always being this stoic, unerringly righteous and correct fellow like he is not uh infallible he gets his ass kicked he Mm. gets tired in fights he's incredibly powerful but i wanted it to be really human really relatable and like any of us he is often wrong about people and uh and he can act in ways that are less than noble Mm. when moved by great passions I love the fact that you had him as, I mean, it, felt, it feels classically noir to have him be a slightly sort of morally gray character, but I love the fact that he's not only a, a veteran of war, but he was also, and he's kind of l- sort of left there and not dwelt on that he was an interrogator. And you get the, yes. it kind of underlies the whole idea of the reminiscence takes on a slightly sinister angle when you think where he was presumably introduced to this technology. No, absolutely. And, you know, in, in many ways, too, technologies developed during wartime do become commercialized and, mm. and uh, adapted for, you know, consumer use. But it does make sense that if some technology like this existed, the first thing that would probably happen would be it would be applied to uh, understand what secrets yeah. people had. And that is that is a touch nefarious, right? There are parts of our minds that should belong solely to us, I think. Yeah, completely. Um, and something should remain secret, perhaps, but uh, no longer once you have this machine. I mean, how much did you sort of plan out how the machine would work? Like, how deep do you go into that? Or is it sort of like, because I, I was fascinated by the sort of almost um, sort of womb-like pool that he has to kind of sit in, the fact that it right. turns up in that big sort of with the filaments hanging down. So it's not like a, a hologram exactly, but it almost is. Like, it's almost real. It's more than seeing it on a screen. Yeah. Let me tell you, I rue the day that I was like, they should be in water because it's a continuity <laughs> nightmare. You've got a hologram to contend with, and then you've got wet hair, unwet hair, and then all of a sudden everybody has to 
be half naked and getting in a tank. I'm like, why couldn't I have just used a plain headset? Um, but I, I, you know, when I was thinking about it, I thought about how it feels like in order to really transport yourself and give yourself over to a memory, you'd have to be in the equivalent of a sensory deprivation tank yeah, or something yeah. where you would feel weightless and be able to allow your body to imagine that it was fully immersed in this memory. And then in terms of the hologram, you know, that was a really tricky thing to pull off because we wanted to do it practically mm. and in camera and succeeded in doing that. We made for the purposes of this film an actual 360 hologram that Hugh was really interacting with. Um, but then the funny thing is, is I also wanted to make sure it felt tactile enough mm. that even though we did it for real, I also wanted it to look to a viewer who is so used to VFX and everything that it could be a real technology that they could enter a room and feel. And so uh, just as when we made the hologram on the day, you have to project onto a kind of luminous gauze, essentially. Mm. I was like, they would expect some kind of, um, you know, matter <laughs> to catch the light and hold this image. And that's where the idea of the strings came in. Uh, and 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 this barrier that uh, you could walk through and touch and interact with it it also um, you know I was inspired by like Surratt paintings you know and what happens if you took a Surratt painting and stretched it out into long noodles and that's kind of that's where that came from why why Miami in particular what where did that because I mean obviously the idea and global warming is all too present so you know right. <laughs> You can totally see that there's a resonance <laughs> to this that feels all too familiar. But I just wondered where specifically Miami and also where running from it with the slums and the barons and the various sort of like hierarchies. I, I mean, why Miami was, it's a coastal city. And sure. so it makes sense. And I wanted to show something that was a cultural melting pot so I could draw these different references um, visually. But also... I wanted somewhere really iconic in terms of, you know, a lot of people know about Miami internationally, right? It's not a foreign place. It stands for something, you know, Disneyland and merriment and bikinis <laughs> and excess and carefree life. You know, you if I say Miami, everybody has a picture of, you know, sexy people in thongs. Um, and I wanted to juxtapose the carefree nature of that with uh, the more somber kind of uh, darker, deeper sensuality that might arise from from this future. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned sort of budgetary constraints and whatnot, and I wondered whether, because this is an original IP science fiction, and all of those things kind of have like alarm bells for studios, don't they? Like, is that a particularly difficult thing to get off the ground? And Assuming that the answer is yes, you know, for a sort of directorial, well, cinematic directorial debut, like, that's a hell of a roll of the dice. I know. And, and you know, the, the script, when I wrote it solely as a writer, was a lot more producible than when I decided to direct it and yeah. suddenly added in a lot of the visual elements that I really wanted to see. But I, I just, I knew from Westworld how I could get a lot of bang for my buck, you know, in terms of stretching it and creating a, a, a big world. Um, uh, it being a producer on that show has been excellent training for for directing. 
and I don't know, I just, I just took a swing and it landed. And I, and you know, a lot of that of course is due to Hugh Jackman, you know, it's, it's, there is no uh, support that is uh, more resounding in the entertainment industry mm. than a giant movie star action <laughs> hero who throws his lot in with yours, yeah. you know, and a lot of people also, you know, ask about the, the gender thing. And, you know, as a woman, it's, it's less common. All of these things are true, um, which is why it was just so great for a man, a man who's known for action, a man who's known um, for having his pick of films to choose from. Mm. When he said, well, this one, this, this film that has no studio <laughs> attached by this woman who's never directed a feature, I'm going to do that film next. Uh, but that that made all the difference. Yeah. And you're like, that was mine. And it makes you, you know, that's got to be pretty empowering. <laughs> I mean, I was like, thank you. Thank you, Hugh. This is great. Let's do this. <laughs> I mean, it was on the, the blacklist in 2013, wasn't it? So, I mean, it got yeah. some some pretty big attention straight away. And did you, am I saying, did you write that around the same time you were writing the first episode of, of Westworld? Yeah, I, I broke them at the same at the same time. It was it was a busy time. I was <laughs> <Yeah>. pregnant. <laughs> I was breaking Westworld. And then I, I wrote that script It all. The script I wrote in the first and second trimesters and it sold towards the end of the I, I literally measured in trimesters. Wow. And then Westworld, I think um, we finished uh, the end of third trimester i think i was doing the finishing touches like two weeks after having a baby <laughs> that's a busy time <laughs> yeah it's it's weird to measure it that way but that's the only marker of time i have from that yeah. period of my life all right so that was lisa joy reminiscence is in cinemas right now and keeping peel for the spoiler special and that one there's an awful lot to delve into folks with reminiscence let's talk about movie news yeah all right it's just the three of us left it feels like a horror movie i think we're gonna lose one every 10 minutes who will survive and what will be left of them? The lucky ones die first, etc., etc., etc. But let's talk about movie news. I think there's only one place to start, which is with the news that, once again, Maverick has felt the need, the need to push back Top Gun Maverick by a few months. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, this is sad. Top Gun Maverick uh, was due in November after being due la- last summer and then Chris- last Christmas and then... Yeah, we're we're now looking at May twenty seventh uh, next year for us here in the UK, and um, so it will be a summer release, which does feel right. But I mean, this is—it's mm. funny. This this is one of the movie projects that even my friends who don't really follow movies are really following. I keep getting messages every time the Top Gun's release is pushed back. People going, "Oh no!" But I must see it. So there is a big cohort of I think, well, honestly, middle aged men who are genuinely dying to see this and i know that bond will probably help some of them might help them through this difficult autumn but you know you are going to have to wait a little bit longer guys so so my sympathies to you katie where do you stand on this well considering that you know mission impossible has also been delayed it's mm. it's it's a it's a familiar trend i'm not entirely surprised but you know if it's been in production for so long people just want to see it and uh yeah, it's just the it's just the delays means less films coming out. The fewer films coming out thing is actually not bad for this autumn because we do have something of a pile up of good movies and movies that might well cannibalize each other's release a little bit. You know, if you've got a Dune and a Bond 
and you know the the likes of a last night in Soho, you know these really really exciting movies that we all mm. are dying to see. You want each of them to actually have the room to breathe at the box office, mm. and you don't want them to be cannibalizing each other for what still seems like a limited number of people going to the cinema. So. If this means that everybody ends up making more money, that more people go to the cinema and see these things on the big screen, mm. maybe this is a win, guys. I know that patience does not come naturally to any of us, but maybe this is a yeah. good thing. Yeah, I, I just think I don't. I'm not sure the solution is pushing it into an even more crowded summer. Now, admittedly, I think mm. it's taken the date that Mission Seven was on, and ag yeah. and again, admittedly, they're still filming Mission Seven, and that might be one of the reasons why they decided to move it back a little bit. To give McHugh the chance to finish it uh, would, would be nice as well. But he, on Instagram this week, he he rapped Haley Atwell. So I think they are finally entering what could be euphemistically and perhaps optimistically termed the home stretch in terms of <laughs> filming that movie. It has literally been a year since they started filming Mission Impossible 7. Fingers crossed for that one. Fingers crossed for Top Gun Maverick. Mm -hmm. But it is going into a really, really crowded summer. I, I, I would argue even more crowded. But the worry here. The worry here is the why. Why is being pushed back? Why they've decided to take this chance? Because box office is still not returning to the level that it was yeah. pre-pandemic. It's doubtful, I would say, that it ever will get to those levels. Oh, no, I but don't I think, think that's true. I, th I think there's going to be, an, uh, they have to go an awful long way before people are confident enough to go to cinemas in those numbers again. I think, as we discussed, I think on last week's show when we were discussing the No Way Home trailer, I think there are movies between now and the end of the year that are going to be really instrumental in restoring that consumer confidence mm. and restoring people's faith and ability to go back to the cinema. But again, so much of that depends on vaccination programs and how people feel in terms of being comfortable with the pandemic and whether those two could go hand in hand. And certainly the, the numbers in the States would indicate that a lot of people still aren't comfortable with going back to the cinema. Yeah, but the States is a particular you know problem because they still have rampaging COVID uh, to a huge degree and, and, and a bigger degree than perhaps even we do in this country. So, you know, one would hope that that will begin to get under control. But what what I think is interesting is that maybe this belies on the part of Paramount, maybe a lack of faith that there are enough bums and seats out there or enough people prepared yes. to put bums and seats for this to be a winner. And what I hope doesn't happen is that that then pardon the, the, the term, becomes infectious and then spreads to the other studios. Because so far, Universal have been pretty willful in saying September 30th, no time to die. It's finally coming out and that is it. We planted a flag in the sand and we're mm. not going to move it. And that's happening. Spider-Man No Way Home has made a big, big yeah. uh, show of going in cinemas, only in cinemas, December 17th. And that's it. June is obviously on HBO Max as well. But uh, that's hopefully going to play US, a big yeah. part in terms of the spectacle of getting people back in, in cinemas. Eternals also. And Top Gun Maverick, which is a film that is specifically designed to be an incredible theatrical experience, is now moving. And that, I'm worried about the signal that that sends out. Yeah, no, look, there is there is this worry, of course. But then at the same time, you know, these are films that, you know, we, we've been here before. These are films that they can't afford to be 
be flops. And Paramount yeah. in particular and, and Universal do not necessarily have their own bespoke streaming service where they keep no. all the money. So there isn't the same incentive to, you know, release it to screen, streaming, streaming and, and recoup some money that way. Yeah. It's the problem that we're still in this and it is absolutely understandable that people might not feel comfortable going back to the cinema in huge numbers yet. Anyway, hopefully all the other films will stay put um, yeah. and finally we get to see Bond. Spidey. Uh, okay, yeah, important. Important. And June. Important. Less important. Less important. Unless that's so Are there snakes important. in June? There's got to be snakes in June. Sandworms. Totally different. Rubbish. What about horses? Are there horses in June? No. Mm. And that is why it fails. There's ornithopters. Do you what have ornithopters? Does Bond have ornithopters? No. So. Is that a dentist? Sounds like a dentist. No. What? Or no. As no. an orthodontist. Oh, okay. I've, I've got one of those. Right. Okay. Well, we'll find out what they are in June. In due course, I've mentioned June enough and James hasn't arrived, so clearly his uh, broadband <laughs> isn't working. All right. Anything else? Cassie Lemons, who uh, made the Harriet film a couple of years ago with uh, Cynthia Erivo, um, is now planning a biopic of Whitney Houston called I Want to Dance with Somebody. So it, it, we've got Naomi Aki lined up to play Houston, which is, I think, probably good casting. Um it's going to be an interesting one, though. It's, uh, I, I don't know, we've had two documentaries about her life in recent years. Um, so I'm not sure what else there is to say, but hopefully Lemons can do a good job. She says that she developed two projects for Whitney early in her career and, and met her and you know worked with her at that point. So she has a bit of first-hand knowledge, which might help. Naomi Aki obviously is, is great and sounds really excited and enthusiastic about it. I, I'm a little bit worried that the estate is involved and... Um, well, we'll talk about respect in a couple of weeks, but that isn't always great week, for next week. But that isn't always great for a rounded depiction of a star's life. So uh, we'll see how it works out. But anyway, I want to dance with somebody is happening. You know what they say, Helen, when life gives you Casey Lemons. Uh, get her to make a film for you. Give Casey Lemons aid to make Oh, a okay, film. sure. Yeah. That's, that's what they say. That's what they say. A very famous phrase. Mm hmm couple of things that broke late last week, so we missed them. So uh, Barry Jenkins' Lion King prequel is going ahead and it has cast <laughs> a lion and another lion. What? <laughs> Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Uh, it has cast Aaron Pierre, who starred in The Underground Railroad for Barry Jenkins. Okay, He's yeah. going to play a younger Mufasa. Mm -hmm. And Kelvin Harrison Jr. Mm, good actor. He's going to play... Taka. And you may be asking you, hey, who the hell is Taka? Hey, who the hell is Taka? Thank you, Helen. Well, Helen, as you well know, Taka will become Scar. <gasps> I'm shocked. So I really hope that this movie is being made just so we can learn how Scar got his Scar. <laughs> <laughs> I have a horrible I have a horrible feeling that's exactly what's gonna happen. Oh but, no. But you know, Barry look, Jenkins. in Barry Jenkins in Barry Jenkins we trust. Like uh, he, he's great and even even as underwhelmed as I have been by all Lion Kings, I'm hopeful for this one. Every day is all Christmas Lion Eve. Kings? I, I, I'll be honest, I haven't seen all the directed video sequels. But yeah, I don't love the cartoon. We've had this conversation. I don't love that. I don't think we've had this conversation, have we? I think it's... I, just, I can't I don't remember love, every conversation we have. I don't love um, animal-led uh, animation. Oh, yeah. No, that does ring a bell. Yeah. Is, it, is it the idea that animals shouldn't be talking? No, I just, I just find most of them a little bit it is tedious. I don't know. And, and, and I just, I mean, even as a kid, I watched um, The Lion King and I was just like, this is Bambi with teeth. 
That film there must be anathema to you, Helen, because not only does it feature talking animals, but it's about daddy issues. And uh, you're right? like, no. Oh. And Scar wants to um, save the environment. So the bad guy has the right idea. <laughs> so fairness, it's he like- doesn't actually. He, 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 he screws up the environment. I will give it that credit. But um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, so. it's uh, I, I just think it's overrated. Katie, are you a Lion King fan? Controversially, no. No, not really. What the hell's happening here? <laughs> it was just one of those things when I was growing up because I was just around, it was like, I was at a time when newspapers just used to big up every single huge blockbuster in the paper. So the anticipation just builds and builds and builds. And when you see it, it's like, oh, okay. And that was essentially the, the Lion King for me. I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna cause a cause cause chaos, but it, it's not it wasn't a pinnacle of my childhood viewing, and it's not what? something that kind of revisited. I know, I know, it's you it's really bad. You guys are a pair of hyenas. That's what you are. Wow, that is it. You just want to tear apart poor little Simba. You just want to tear <laughs> the flesh off his bones. You disgust me. You sicken me. Well, so I'll just have to live no with that. No Hakuna Matata for you. No, no worries. So worries. No, no worries. You're I want worries. worries. I want, worries. I want wow. worries for the rest of your days. That How is harsh. Dare you? That is way harsh, Ty. <laughs> Anywho, unbelievable stuff. But so Barry anyway, Jenkins, listen. look, he's great, yes. and so I'm, I'm hopeful for this. Yeah. We love a bit of Barry, don't we? We do. We do. Just to uh, flag up that Venice Film Festival has kicks has started, and a lot of people. Like filmmakers and uh, critics in general are com- not only commending the setup for COVID because apparently they are very stringent about uh, restrictions in place and everyone's complying and everyone's happy. But um, also, we got a standing ovation for Helen. You might need to help me here. Pedro Almodovar's Madres Paralelas for Parallel Mothers, uh, latest film by the Spanish filmmaker, got a five-minute selling ovation. So I am very excited to see how it does. In fairness, though, you could screen any old nonsense at a film festival and it would get standing ovation. I don't know. I saw Sea of Trees. Actually, no, they did clap for Sea of Trees, so I think you might be right. Yeah, it's just it's, they're, they're conditioned to do so. You, know, you could literally show them a, a full-length video version of this podcast and even at the end they'd go, I was, yeah. That was good. 10 minutes. I'm going to stand on my feet for 10 minutes and applaud that. So fairness, I don't think I mean, we can take too much from that. Pedro Almodovar is, is better than we are at um, films. <laughs> I'm, like, I, I don't want to be most, controversial here, but I'm just going know. to say that. You've gone straight from The Lion King Ain't All That to Pedro Almodovar is, is better than the that. Empire podcast. Yeah. And I'm not so sure. I mean, you're really escalating. You're yeah, escalating yeah. fast. And, you know what? Uh, may have to watch. I stand by both opinions, but especially Pedro Almodovar is better at making films than we are at making films. Oh, no, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm saying no that. No argument. No argument. Pedro Almodovar is better at making films than we are at making films. But are you saying that Pedro Almodovar is better than the Empire podcast full stop? I, I really don't think this is controversial. I said it out loud yeah. and I heard it. Just as you right, as you hear I it. The answer yeah. is online, yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's got better hair. He's got all those great spikes, you know, it's just. He does. Oh, he does. What a guy. Yeah. 
All right. Listen, maybe we'll take this to Twitter. We'll do a poll. Which is better, the FR podcast or Pedro Amodovar? Uh, anywho, the other bit of news that I missed last week, uh, just it just broke just after we wrapped, uh, is that the Old Guard 2 is happening and he has a new, and Lay has, Lay has a new director, which is Victoria Mahoney, mm. uh, who I believe is no relation to Carrie Mahoney, the star of uh, the lead character in the Police Academy Police movies. Academy movies yeah. yeah, I don't think they're related. Uh, and she's taken over from Gina, Prince, Bythewood, and all the gang is coming back. And um, I hope that this one is better than the last one. Well, I mean, the last one was basically setting up the world. So hopefully now they can actually go and have more fun with it. I didn't hate The Old Guard at all. I liked it. But, um, but it did feel like a prequel to itself. So hopefully now we can have itself, you know, yeah, which is There good. are questions that were raised in The Old Guard that need mm. answering. Exactly. Yes. Many, many questions, such so as questions. why being the main one. A. Uh, Mahoney said in a statement, uh, I must have watched The Old Guard over a hundred times. That's it. She's got a lot of time. That's a lot of time. It seems like a lot. Um, maybe a lot, she's just a lot she's a Terry guard. White person. She just watches movies a lot, you know, over and over again. Maybe she is. We've had some chat about famously good directors uh, so far in this new section. Um, I'm going to throw Francis Ford Coppola into the ring with those people. Yes, controversially, mm-hmm. I'm going to say he's a good director. A good director. <laughs> um, and he's been working on a project called Megalopolis for two decades now, um, which yes. he's apparently trying again and has a very, very tasty lineup of would-be actors uh, that he's meeting for roles in the film, including Oscar Isaac, Forrest Whitaker, Kate Blanchett, uh, John Voight, Zendaya, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Jessica Lange. So that's a pretty good selection. Um, he's apparently putting up some of his own money to part finance the film, which is apparently in the $100 million range. And apparently the concept is a Roman epic in the traditional Ben-Hur, Cecil B. DeMille way, but a modern counterpart focusing on America. It's based mm. on the Catalina Conspiracy, um, which was a famous duel between a patrician called Catalina, um, which would be the Oscar Isaac part, and Cicero, who would be Forrest Whitaker, as the beleaguered mayor of New York during a financial crisis. So Good it stuff. does sound a little bit like that um, Oscar Isaac... New York politics TV show. What was it called? Oh yeah, that one. That one. That one. And one a, with uh, the sh- forgettable show, name. Show the money or something. Show a good money. man. Something about good man. Something show. <sighs> I'm gonna have sure to the word it. show is in the title. I'm sure hero. Something show hero. me a hero. Show me a hero. Show me a hero. There we go. We got there in the end. <laughs> we may not have got the title right, but we got there in the end. We've decided that's what the title of that show was, and that is what it is from now on. Uh, yeah, massively excited about this. I mean, there's always there's always questions about whether directors, as they get older, retain the film and the figure and the the fire that 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 drove their early projects. And uh, certainly, it's been a long time few years now, certainly mm-hmm. since uh, Coppola last directed the movie. But I know this is a project he's wanted to make for a long, long, long time. And I would love to see him hit a home run with this one, which I believe is a cricket term. So very excited for Megalopolis. Give the man all the money. Uh, he's putting a lot of his own cash into this one as well. Mm-hmm. So fingers crossed. I'm excited about the current remake of Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which is casting up a storm. Salem's Lot, of course, is the a uh, vampire mm. novel was King's second published novel, made into a very scary miniseries back in the uh, tail end of the 70s, uh, starring David Soul and a scary vampire. And it has a lot of nightmare fuel in it. The little vampire kid scratching the out the window in the middle of the night. Uh, the mm-hmm. window. Oh, no. yeah. Mm-mm. No, no it, hard it's pass. It's one of my favourite Stephen King's. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant story. 
the book or the the, the book, series the book. or both. I, I, yeah, I, I just right. love those kind of um, slow burning, kind of creeping plague kind of stories. Yes, they're really good. Not yes, in real life, like, just... It's almost a forerunner for The Stand in the way that the yeah, vampirism is, is a disease that takes over the town of Salem's Lot. It's so, so good. So Gary Doberman, who is uh, one of the key writers behind the Conjuring franchise, he is going to write and direct this one. And this week he cast Lewis Pullman, son of Bill, mm-hmm. uh, soon to be seen, well, maybe not so soon to be seen, in Top Gun Maverick uh, as well. Uh, he cast him as the the film's hero, Ben Mears, who is a writer who comes to Salem's Lot and discovers that uh, vampires have shown up at the exact same time. Uh-oh, what are the odds? Uh, he's also cast this week Bill Camp, Mackenzie mm-hmm. Lee, and Spencer Treat Clark, who are going to be in the film uh, also. Good people. Um, as as people who get involved and mixed up with the with the vampires. Exciting stuff. Very, very yeah. exciting stuff. Uh, but is it as exciting, folks, as David Oyelowo? Now this is this feels like honestly, it feels like this is this is the the movie news this week that feels most like it's been created by Mad Libs or <laughs> Hollywood has got a massive tombola. I feel very strongly that the casting of a film we're going to be discussing later on was cast almost entirely by Tombola, mm. where they just stuck a whole bunch of names in, whirled the Tombola around a few little and few times, some put, put a hand in and went, James yeah. A. Caster. Yes, he's in the film now. Uh, I think that's what's happened with this week's news, which is that David Oyelowo is going to produce and star in mm-hmm. the Rocketeer sequel. <laughs> <laughs> that is news I did not see coming. I'm happy about it. I'm excited about it. I want to see it. But please discuss. I'm here for a Rocketeer sequel because it reminds me of Captain America the First Avenger, for one, for obvious reasons, in that it shares a director and a whole point of view on life. It has a really good score. It's very good for writing too. Uh, and I think it's just cute and underrated. So, um, you know, if it is sort of more kind of, I don't know if it's going to be hopefully 1940s Nazi fighting daring do but with rockets. But if that is the case, I'm I'm super on board for that. And Katie? Oh yeah, totally. I'm I'm really hyped for that. The I have fond memories of the original Rocketeer film starring Jennifer Connelly and Billy Campbell. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. Bill, yeah. So yeah, lo- looking forward to this uh, new vision. Hopefully. Yeah, and of course, a delicious turn from from Timothy Dalton, the best Bond, as the the bad guy. Yeah. Tash and all. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen The Rocketeer in a long, long time, but it's it's one of those movies now. It's beloved of film Twitter, and it's had a bit of a a renaissance or a rocket renaissance. It's and on Disney Plus, isn't it? The Rocketeer. It is. Yeah, I watched yeah. it there recently. Yeah. There I wonder if maybe they've had a surge in people watching it and gone, "Ooh, hang on a second, we might be able to make a sequel to this." And then David Oyelowo has come in with a pitch. Maybe it was a formative movie for him. He's about yeah, the same was. age as us, so yeah, yeah. could have been. Speaking of Disney sequels, Jungle Cruise has been greenlit for a sequel as it's um, passed the $100 million mark in the US and uh, mm-hmm. approaches $200 million worldwide. Uh, so mm-hmm. The Rock will be happy and uh, yes. Emily Blunt will be happy. And look, I, I hope that they, they do a really good job and, and you know just remember to make it feel even vaguely original this time. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, meow. Meow. A saucer of milk at Table Helen, please. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but again, this goes back a little bit to the Top Gun story that we started mm. off with, uh, which is that this movie has hit 100 million in the States. That is possible. Uh, and, you know, 200 million worldwide. Of course, those numbers wouldn't have been great before the pandemic. Yeah, they would have been now very, I think very they're poor. pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this is reflected in budgets going forward, whether studios feel that they can take a 200 million, 300 million dollar punt on a movie now, or whether they'll have to tighten their belt and find ways 
to be a little bit more creative with a little bit less. Yeah, I think I think the problem is that you know Hollywood can't cut back the budget of its big movies too much because the the threat of streaming is too great. Like you can't spend less than what two hundred million on your Dune sequel if you've got Foundation on TV looking like. 200 million bucks. You, you can't do it. You know, um, you have to persuade people to leave the house and that requires spending a certain amount of money. So it means that there is only so much they can trim from the budgets. Um, I, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know that there is one necessarily. I think we might, you're right, see more, um, see them attempt to re, you know, rebuild uh, the, the sort of medium budget film see them attempt to do some cheaper comedies that might break out, you know, some get back to the rom-com, maybe do that kind of thing. But I don't know that they can spend less on the blockbusters. And I don't think the, the economic model works without blockbusters right now. I don't know that the the whole industry is set up to work without them. So, um, because the, the multiples that they make are so much greater than anything else over time. There's not, there's no comparison. So they are still the most reliable way of pleasing your shareholders. And sadly, that is what every studio has to do. And speaking of the most reliable way of pleasing shareholders, I am back. Uh, Helen, did you by any chance look in the mirror and say Dune five times? <laughs> we did say Dune while you were gone and we thought that would work. That's worked. It maybe summoned it was, me it from the spice dunes of Arrakis. <laughs> the ultimate sandworm. He is back. <laughs> Maybe you have to take some de-sandworming tablets. Maybe that's what Infermectus actually does. Guaranteed to cure COVID. Yeah, gets rid of James Dyer. I'll, I'll take two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, last thing we want to talk about this week is very, very sad news. It is the, the death at the age of 91 of the great Ed mm. slash Edward Asner. Lou Grant, Car From Up, Santa Claus. Mm. He was a tremendous actor and it seemed as well, never had the, uh, the pleasure myself, but it seemed like, tell a lie, interviewed him at, New York, 2003, the things you forget doing his job, interviewed him in 2003. But uh, yeah, he seemed like a tremendous, tremendous guy. Yeah, he really did. And, and an activist as well, someone who really fought for unions, someone who really fought for the, you know, the little guy, which you would kind of expect of, of his Lou Grant character. Incredible statistics also that I was reading this week. You know, he was nominated, I think, for every season of the Mary Tyler Moore show as the Lou Grant character. He won, I think he won, was it five times for that and then two for... Uh, when Lou Grant went on and, and sort of spun off into his, own, yeah. uh, in yeah. his, into his own dramatic series. I mean, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal record by any standard. And he gives us all hope because, you know, that didn't really start, that didn't really take off for him until he was in his 40s. So there's still time, people. Come on. All this past is prologue. Uh, absolutely. And Lou Grant's really interesting as well because it is uh, it was a drama. So it's, mm. it's, it's spun off, as you say, from the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show, which was a sitcom. Yeah. And so that, that change in genre and that change in focus was really interesting. I remember as a kid, I don't think we, if we got the Mary Tyler Moore show over here, I don't remember it, but I do remember Lou Grant. And that's where I, I first knew Ed Asner. Yeah. And then of course, you know, Carl from Up is an iconic character. Incredible, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I know it's a voice performance and some people may turn their noses up at that, but those people would be wrong. They would be they wrong. They would be wrong to do so. Uh, he was a, an incredible uh, actor and uh, one heck of a human being. And we're very, very sad indeed to hear about his loss, the great Ed Asner, who died last week at the age of 91. And going from some very sad news about Ed Asner, uh, we now have to plug the new issue. As is tradition, it is New Empire Day as we are recording this. So forgive the sudden handbrake turn and, and switch in tone. 
uh, as we tell you all about the new issue of Empire, which is an absolute belter. And it is a celebration slash collaboration with Edgar Wright because his new movie Last Night in Soho is coming out in cinemas. And so this is a big old deep dive into all things Edgar Wright. So I was on set of Last Night in Soho a couple of times, spoke to him and his cast a number of times about the film uh, as well. So there's a huge cover feature about Last Night in Soho in there. It is not the film that you might think it is, folks. That's all I'm going to say on that mm. one. I also spoke to the film's co-writer, Christy wilson Cairns, who is enormous fun uh, for feature on hair as well. There's other stuff involving Edgar as well. We do mini oral histories on some of the key scenes of his career, including the doppelganger scene from Shaun of the Dead and the foot chase from Baby Driver, things like that. And he sits down for a freewheeling chat with the one and the only George Miller. So that's exciting also. But it's not just all Edgar all the time. Oh, no, folks. I wrote about Wheel of Time. Did you? I did. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting for you. It was. Good news. The showrunner said the right things. He said the password. It's not shit. It's not shit. Yeah, that's what he said. Is it shit? And he went, it's not shit. And you go, this guy is ticking all the boxes. This is amazing. This is exactly what the fans wanted. They did not Not want this to be shit. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, So yes, the Wheel of Time just keeps on turning, as they say in in the Wheel of Time books. Uh, Actually kind of do. (laughs) They do. do (laughs) The Wheel of Time turns. And ages come and go, a living memory that becomes legend. Legend fades to myth. Myth is long forgotten when the age that gave birth comes again. Oh, oh dear God! Insert Trollocs uh, gag here. <laughs> we also have features on the Many Saints of Newark, which is of course David Chase and Alan Taylor, director of the twenty-third best Marvel movie, uh, Thor: The Dark World. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, they are back in the world of the Sopranos for a Sopranos prequel, which uh, stars, amongst other people, Michael Gandolfini, the son of the late great James Gandolfini, as a young Tony Soprano. I cannot wait to see that movie. Cannot wait. Uh, we also have a feature on sex education. This month's Gods Among Us, which is deep dives into people's storied careers, is Michelle Pfeiffer. Amazing. Uh, which I believe is how you pronounce her name. Uh, we have first looks at things like Eternals and Benedict Cumberbatch's The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Karen Gillan is the pint of milk this month. And if you've ever heard or read a Karen Gillan interview, then you'll know that it is a must read. We review all the films need reviewing. We have in my section, review the best section. We have a big old deep dive interviews with Kari Joji Fukunaga about Beasts of No Nation as it comes out in Criterion. We talk with Bill Duke about the classic deep cover there's a very interesting interview with Sean Young about her career. We rank the Fast and Furious movies and much, much more. There are other things in other sections, but quite frankly, why the hell would you bother? It is a an incredible issue. Uh, great subscribers cover as well this week by the uh, this week, this month, by the wonderful artist Stanley Chow. Cannot recommend it highly enough. It is Terry White's last issue, folks. And she went out on a high, I would say. Is a belter. It's available in all good and evil news agents and digital news agents as well. Good and evil. Uh, so pick it up right now. Do it. Do it. Do it. Pay our wages, you motherfuckers. Time now for this week's second guest. And uh, you know, finally, after having something of a Marvel Cinematic Universe drought, uh, 
on the big screen, our cup runneth over. Hot on the heels of Black Widow comes Shang-Chi and a Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, which introduces to the MCU its very first Asian-American title hero, Shang-Chi himself, played by the Canadian actor Simu Liu. Uh, Now, again, he was in London last week. Uh, Because of COVID and because of uh, protocols, I interviewed him over Zoom. Uh, But He's a great, great guy. Really, really funny. Uh, seems absolutely set to take stardom in his stride and stardom is coming his way very, very quickly indeed. I also spoke to him for the cover feature uh, that we did a couple of months ago. Um, and so he seems like this is a guy with his head screwed on. So we talked about obviously the movie Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. We talked about a great number of things. We talked about Brad Allen, who is the film's second unit director and and main stunt and fight choreographer who passed away a couple of weeks ago, very, very sadly, suddenly and tragically. So we talked about that uh, and Brad as well. Here is Simu Liu. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the Empire podcast by the star of Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Rings, Mr. Simu Liu. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm a, I'm a wee bit jet lagged. I just got off the plane yesterday afternoon. I'm in uh-huh. London. It's fantastic. I would have loved to have done this in person, but, um, you know, it's still great to be here. It's great to talk to you. (laughs) It's almost like there's some sort of pandemic stopping us from doing this in person. Yeah. But London's like pretty open too. I, you know, I was, I was maybe pleasantly surprised slash a little worried, but you know, yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm taking precautions. Everyone's taking precautions, but it's, it's yeah. Have you had a chance to get out and about yet? I did a I did a little bit of walking around. We're in a we're in a pretty central place in London, so um, I'm right by the Thames, which is great. Um, I haven't been to London in like 17 years. Uh, I last went with my came with my mother when I was 15 and very rebellious, and we spent half the trip not talking to each other. So that was uh, not a great London trip. I don't have the the greatest <laughs> memories, but but no, this is a beautiful city. I'm very happy to be here. If you're anything like me, whenever I went to Canada, I went to Toronto. I spent five weeks in Toronto when I was 16 and I was miserable the entire time. I was having the best time, but I did not want to show it. So every time I see pictures of myself from that time, I have a scowl on my face in front of me. And are you the same? You know, if you look back on pictures of that time, oh, it's it's, it's us in front of Buckingham Palace. It's us in front of 10 Downing Street and you're just scowling. Yeah, yeah. I had like one expression on my, this kind of like half smile, but like always trying to seem like I was too cool for all of it, which is so dumb. I mean, teenagers are so dumb. Sorry to me. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry to any uh, 13 and 19 year olds that are listening, but I, I mean, I certainly, I was just an idiot. I mean, I wish yeah. I had just, you know, accepted that trip and appreciated for what it was, which is my, my mother, first of all, giving me a free trip to Europe and also just wanting to connect with me. I was just like not having any of it. I was like, I hate you, mom. I just want to be with my friends. God, I'm like, man. But you didn't take drastic <laughs> steps, right? You didn't, you didn't suddenly just leave and then change your name and become a parking valet. He didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't do what, what, what Shang-Chi does in, in this movie. No, that was a, yeah, yeah. What he does is a little bit extreme. And it's also <laughs> because he was raised under very extreme circumstances. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, trained to be an assassin from an early age. So I guess I, yeah. I can't really fault him from taking extreme measures to get out of that situation. And your parents aren't crime lords. Um, not that we know of, although, you know, my, my dad has a tendency to just like, you know, disappear into the basement for long periods of time. So maybe he is running a secret <laughs> syndicate that I'm not aware of, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. That's the thing. If you've learned anything from Breaking Bad is that it's the people you suspect the least. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And my dad really is some like he, he smiling all the time. So jovial, um, so harmless looking, but, but you know, that is exactly the recipe for, uh, for, uh, mm. for a crime Lord. In have hiding. you been down to the basement recently, Simu? Have you, have you seen what's <laughs> down there? Yeah, it's uh, he recently put a, a ping pong table down there. Actually, we, we, we do spend <laughs> quite a bit of time down there uh, playing each other in ping pong. It's one of our favorite things to, to do. I'm terrible at ping pong. I can't do it. I am also I mean, my my, my dad is amazing. And I don't want to I don't want to I, I don't want to be inside. But he, he has this like it's China, like ancient Chinese skills. I feel like he's he holds it in a specific way. He's got such like amazing uh, 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 technique with the, with the ping pong paddle. And I feel like I've inherited none of it. I, I also actually feel like he has taught me just enough to be okay, but never enough to best him. Mm-hmm. And he's always like withheld those, those secrets from me. And so I, I'm just in a place where I'm perpetually losing to him, even though he's like, you know, 62 years old, he's, he's whooping, <laughs> he's whooping my ass it every feels- time we play. In a very low-key way, low-key, not low-key way, it feels like you have been almost prepping your entire life, Len, for everything that Shang-Chi goes through in this movie. If I just track Shang-Chi's journey in the context of table tennis in my life, it actually <laughs> fits perfectly, and that's why I, I was able to sink into the character so so seamlessly. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it, it's funny, but it, I actually do obviously connect with the with the character quite a bit. Yeah. You know, least of all being, you know, he, he is Asian American, I'm Asian Canadian, but um, yeah, just, you know, we, I think both grew up with feeling the weight of our parents' expectations on our shoulders. I mean, mm-hmm. my parents were, um, um, you know, electrical engineers, uh, they're immigrants from, from China. And, and we were always just kind of in a state of struggle building our life. And their expectation was for me to follow in their footsteps to, you know, achieve academic success, because that was one of the only ways to ensure a stable job and, and in turn a stable life. Mm. And so obviously very different from running the 10 rings organization, but still I, I, you know, found myself wanting other things for my life. I found myself at odds with them and, and, and then, you know, going from a place of being very argumentative with them and, and not being able to connect to them to then getting older and learning to accept that as a part of yeah. my life. And not only to accept, but to be grateful and to love um, has been a part of my personal journey. And, and so um, it, it's very, it's very similar, I think, to, to the journey that Sean goes through over the course of the film. Absolutely. And we, we can't get into spoilers. I'm doing that later on with uh, with Dest and we're going to have a big old sit down and have a, a big old natter about everything that happens in this movie. Oh, um, amazing. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Ryan Reynolds called it spoiler therapy, which is what I've been calling it ever oh since. Oh, my God. So that sounds amazing. Yeah. So just, you know, all the stuff that you haven't been able to talk to anyone about for the last two years, you can you can unburden yourself. It's Yeah, I've been walking on eggshells for like a year. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, can I even say? Can I even say that? Because is that beyond the first act? Can I talk about anything past the bus fight? It is mentally exhausting. Absolutely. Mm. I don't want to get canceled by Marvel. You know. <laughs> My feeling is on this, that once you have been the title star of a movie and it is out and it's in cinemas, it's fine. You can, you can spoil everything. So mm. It's okay. I checked with Kevin Feige and he tells me you can just say what's happening in the MCU for the next three years. You can just lay it on me right now. And I am going to take your word for it 100%. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, uh, so there's another 10 Avengers movies is my understanding. 20. 
There's 20. Uh, there's 20. Yeah, they're all yeah <laughs> slated for release through to 2078. Um, I will be I will be nearly 100. I will be, I will be 89 years old, but I I will confirm that I I will reprise my role in Avengers 20 as as Shang Chi, <laughs> the 89 year old kung fu wonder. Um, still at it, and um, yeah. and I'll still do all my own stunts. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's that I'm looking forward to. That's going to be a lot of fun. Is that what is the stunt for an 89 year old Shang Chi? Is it just walking down the stairs? Well, like happening? peeing. It's yeah. like the, the yeah. stunt is like peeing properly. <laughs> it's probably like going up the stairs. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. That's terrible. Um, you know, it's 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 probably like putting on my teeth in the in the morning yeah i'm there for that that's the big old action sequence but uh yeah. I, mean, I love this film i thought there were the action sequences were were absolutely phenomenal and yeah obviously a large part of that is down to brad allen and i had the i had the, the good fortune over the last few years i've been in a number of movies you know directed by Edgar wright and matthew fawn and guillermo del toro mm-hmm. and i'd met brad a number of times over the years and got to speak with him speak with him didn't know him remotely as well as as you did and i i, I know mm-hmm. from you know your your social media accounts recently. How much his very 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 tragic passing impacted mm. you? Um, but this move this movie, it you know, it feels to me that this is a great tribute to him, and these action sequences are great tributes to him. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I mean, Brad is is a, a very talented man with with such a vision, and and we're we're still so deeply shocked and, and saddened um, by his loss. And, and I, I think you're right. I think it very much, I mean, it, it is something that, that I hope that he'd be proud of if he saw, but he really, I mean, he put every bit of himself into this movie and into the action sequences. He assembled a, a group of incredibly talented stuntmen and, and um, you know, he was a part of the Jackie Chan stunt team. A lot of the fight cor- uh, coordinators and choreographers were Jackie Chan stunt team uh, people. And, and, and those guys are top notch, man. They're world class. And, and, in, in, you know, it, it's I feel like on full display in our bus fight sequence, yeah. which is so incredible and, and really just use every square inch of that bus. But um, it's, you know, it, I, I think there's a lot of homages to Jackie, you know, in there. And, and that's that's also a testament to Brad. I think he really loved just the genre of, of Kung Fu, of martial arts, of wuxia, and, and really just built in so many different homages and references uh, throughout all the fights of the movie. Um, my favorite personal Brad story is, is one of my first days of training. Brad is, uh, is such a wonderful guy and, and can come off serious if you don't know him very well, but he's mm-hmm. got such an, a, a sharp sense of humor. And um, yeah, one of the first days I was training, I was like stretching. I was kind of like, you know, goofing off with, uh, with, with some of the, the, the other trainers and stuff. And, and he comes up to me and he's very, you know, Brad's Australian. He's very soft-spoken. And he said, Hey, Simu, can you, can you do this? And he, uh, he, you know, bends down and he puts his hands flat to the ground with like, you know, with, with, uh, straight legs. And I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that's pretty hard, but I think I've been training pretty hard, but I'll, yeah, I, I think I could do that. And I do it. And I'm like, so happy. And I'm like, look, Brad, look, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And Brad's like, great great. Can you do this? And he then, you know, can you imagine his like hands on the ground and his feet? He literally just goes up into a perfect handstand and it's like the top part of his body doesn't even move. He just like his feet literally just lifted as if they were being picked up and he just, his body just effortlessly inverts into this handstand. 
And I was like, no, Brad, I, I can't do that. And he gives me this like tisk tisk, and he shakes his head and he says, so many muscles and you can't even control your body. And he just walks away from me with a little smirk on his face. I mean, Brad, Brad is such, was uh, above all else too, like such an incredible physical guy Yeah, was such a gymnast, such a martial artist. And even at the age of 50, he was in incredible shape. And, uh, it was just one of the beginning of our, of our amazing relationship where, and I was dumbfounded. I was like, what did he, how, how dare, what? <laughs> um, but, I, but, you know, I, I loved it and I loved, I loved every minute of, of working with him. And, um, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I miss him so much. I really do. Absolutely. And, uh, as I say, these fight scenes are, are testaments to his inventiveness and, you know, his, his passion as well. Mm-hmm. And you were so impressive in those fight scenes. Was there a moment while shooting the movie where it felt for you like that it had clicked? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I actually very viscerally remember that moment. Unfortunately, it was like the last action day that we had. <laughs> It was like 11 months in, we had done all of our fight sequences already. And I was like, I remember I was doing, it was, it was the death dealer fight scene that we had saved until the very end. And I was like, Oh, I I feel like I'm finally getting the hang of this. And then we like, we're literally wrapping like the next week. Oh my God. Um, But you know, I I think I, you know, I'm never going to be fully satisfied. Like I was always the annoying guy behind the monitor that was like, can we do one more? Can we do one more? Cause I feel like if I could just, if I just did that, like one part slightly differently, you know, and, and I'd have like Destin and, and Jonathan, our producer over the shoulder being like, it's good. Like, stop it. We're, we're moving on and me being like, no, but yeah, but like, if you, if you just let me do one more, um, you know, I was, I, I was definitely very, very self-critical, very picky. And I knew I had to, right. I knew, I knew that, you know, first of all, I wasn't anywhere near the martial artist that, you know, that, that Jackie was that jet, you know, yeah. that Brad was. And so I, I was, I think in a lot of ways trying to live up to that legacy and yeah, that death dealer fight was so great because it was an intricate one-on-one there's it's just lots of like hand-to-hand choreography. It's, it's really fast. And I just remember, you know, doing a couple of those shots and, and I think it was I think I even remember which one it was. It's the one where I knock one of his daggers out of his hands and I grab it out of the air. Um, I just remember being so happy watching it in the monitor being like, Oh, I finally got it. It's nice. Um, but yeah, very, very late in the process. <laughs> Guys, we're going to have to go back and reshoot the entire film. <laughs> I can just go back, shoot the whole movie again. You know? Yeah. I know. You know how you set aside like two weeks to do some additional shooting and some pickups. Can we yes. make that two months instead? <laughs> just do can we just make that another? Yeah. I, it looks, it, it does happen for some movies. Like there are, you know, some, thankfully for us, I feel like, you know, maybe it was because we shut down for four months in the middle of, oh, yeah. of our shoot as well. I feel like we really took those four months and, and um, you know, Destin was really honing the script and making it even better. And by the time we came back in July, you know, we had a, we had a script with like a, a very different ending than the one that we had initially. It was like, just like everything had, had tightened and, and the beats were there and, and it actually ended up really benefiting our movie, I think, to have, to, to have had that little bit of extra time. And, and, you know, when, when the reshoots came around, there was actually, it was very simple stuff. It was just like tweaking little story beats here and there and, and filling in little gaps. But, but for the most part, the, you know, what we shot was, was, was phenomenal. When we spoke for the magazine, you said that your audition process involved two scenes from 
Goodwill Hunting. And obviously mm-hmm. being a brilliant award-winning journalist, I didn't ask you what those scenes were. So mm-hmm. now I am. What, you, what, what were those scenes from Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> Um, okay, so two scenes. Uh, one was uh, is Will and um, and I forget what Mini Driver's character's name is, but they're they're at the the racetrack and they're okay. dating. And she's you know she's just like I don't know how your mind works. You're so you know you're so smart. And and he's kind of just goofing off and he's talking about how he has thirteen brothers because she's she's also one, she's wondering why why haven't I met your family yet. And, you know, Will, Will as you know, if you know anything about that character, he's had a, obviously a very, a very um, contentious relationship with his, with his dad. He's not really mm-hmm. in touch with his family and he just deflects, deflects, deflects. He's someone who's constantly kind of running away from his past. Ooh, spoiler. <laughs> is that, is that what this character is doing? Are we sensing a parallel? Uh-huh. But so he's talking, so he's got his, like, he's like, oh yeah, I got 11 brothers. I got Marty, Ricky, Bobby, Jerry, Jeffy, you know, like he's, he's listing them off. And then the second one is, is a bit more serious of a scene where it's it's him and and that same character played by Minnie Driver uh, breaking up. And it's, you know, when oh. she says, I don't, you know, tell me you don't tell me you don't love me and I'll stop caring. You know, and and, and he says and he says, I don't love you, even though we know we, the audience knows he loves her deeply. There um, you go. It, it, such a beautiful scene and yeah. uh, and 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 a little bit. Yeah, it's much, much more dramatic and intense. Um Really great scenes. One of my favorite movies. Impossible to do without a without a Bostonian accent. Um, impossible, <laughs> especially when he's listing off the names. He's like, "I got eleven brothers. He got I got Ricky Body." So, so I I couldn't help but I think deliver the lines with a tiny bit of Matt Damon affectation, uh-huh. which you're not supposed to do as an actor. You know, in class, if you're doing scenes from a movie that's already out, like the most unoriginal thing you can do is copy everything that the actor did. Right. Of course. But it's so hard, uh, especially if you love a movie and you just like the delivery of certain lines have been seared into your brain. You just like, you just get well, it. Well, you know what, Simu? It's not your fault. It's not oh. your fault. Oh, it's not your fault. Oh, it's not your fault. Don't f with me. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why they didn't put us in the same room because right now we'd be hugging, and that's we'd be the, hugging. And they don't I'm, want that. Yeah, in the pandemic. I feel it. I feel they it. Don't want it. I felt Absolutely. the hug. I felt. I felt you getting closer to me as you were saying it, and I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Simu, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks indeed, and thank uh, you, and man. Best luck with everything, including uh, Avengers Twenty in sixty years' time. Printed. It's confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) Done deal. Thanks, man. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So that was Simu Liu. And now it is time to talk about this week's movies, the ones that are going to be playing in your multiplex, if you have one, or your sofaplex, if you have one. But one that's playing exclusively in cinemas is Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Jumbo, The Legend of the One Ring. Thank you very much. I shall I shall lead on this particular ring piece. Uh, this, uh, this see, I, I had an interesting time with this one for the simple reason that I do love it when Marvel pull characters that you don't know particularly well out of their out of their well, if you like, uh, and slap them up on the big screen. So Ant Man, I didn't know an awful lot about before. Ant Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, I'd never read any Guardians comics before that. And there's something I think always pleasant about being introduced to a character as opposed to someone like Iron Man or Captain America or Black Widow, who you've read endless comics about. 
Now, Shang-Chi, I would say, is probably the most obscure thing Marvel have done yet. I'd n- literally never heard of him uh, before most this haven't. film was announced. And I think, yeah, exactly that. I think most haven't done that. So they do have a bit of a blank canvas with this, and they can kind of do what they want. It has to be said, when this film starts... It gets off to one of the strongest stars, I think, of any Marvel, sort of, certainly introductory Marvel movie to date. So you've got Simu Liu, who plays Sean, <laughs> a valet parker uh, in San Francisco. And he and his friend Katie, played by Aquafina, are just sort of slackers bumming around until an ill-fated tram journey bus journey. It's a bus journey, isn't it? An ill-fated bus journey reveals him as a martial arts master. So he is, in fact, the son of Wen Wu, played by legend Tony Leung. And we learn about Tony Leung in the uh, sort of film's prologue, which is entirely subtitled, which I thought was a bold move. Uh, And they talk about how he is essentially an immortal warrior in possession of these 10 magic rings, which give him eternal life and lots and lots of power. So this film kind of plays out as a sort of discovering his destiny, recovering his birthright type movie, introducing to this character, introducing you to, I guess, really sort of the MCU's first proper wushu movie. Uh, Obviously, we've had some pretty impressive fights and choreography in the past, but this bus fight in this, which begins, is genuinely, I would say, up there with one of my favourite MCU scenes. It is absolutely spectacular, Uh, which is why I say this film gets off to an amazing start for me. Now, it, it follows that up with some other, I think, very inventive, great action sequences. For me, while this film had a lot of heart and I loved, loved the interplay between uh, Simulu and Aquafina, it sort of falls down for me in the second half in that I think it runs out of momentum and it maybe goes into more of a by-the-numbers finale, which is very sort of CG fuckathon, if you will. So steps away from the wushu and goes more towards grand spectacle. And for me, that left me a little bit cold. And I think I came away from this film rather disappointed. Not disappointed based on my preconceptions going in, but based on how good this started and how amazing I thought it was going to be. I felt a little bit let down at the end. That said, I don't think this is a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's great. And I think it's actually a really good, you know, introduction to a character. I just maybe wish that it had kept up the momentum that it had in the first half. And then it really could have been for me top tier Marvel. Whereas as it stands, I think it's probably a little sort of middlingly below mid Marvel for me, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but I think a little bit of tightening of the script, maybe some slightly better dialogue again towards the second half and a little bit more coherent action. And I would have loved it, but I suspect I may be in the minority here. No, absolutely. I, I think it needed to be tightened towards the, the last part, especially when you, the Marvel's, the, um, Shang-Chi's just so boldly introduced so many things that might dissuade certain audiences, like the subtitling and the man, use of Mandarin. Mm. Um, you know, cause, cause certain audiences may not like subtitled movies and, um, but it, have this in them in um, such a, big mainstream film is a bold move and hopefully it'll be something that will be encouraged further on um but yeah as 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 an asian and certain things i did not agree with towards the end but other things like the the fight sequences the use that uh, that would ring true of other martial arts films that i know and love i really enjoyed that i just think it just it's it kind of just lost momentum toward uh, once we get to a certain moment and yeah. certain characters, I'm not going to say much more, are introduced. It just kind of, I just kind of thought, are you serious? You're going to do this? And it just kind of ruined, it just went, it just was like at one step down from a very high mountain. Mm. Mm. 
I wonder if we see that. I think I know the bit you are referring to. See, weirdly, that bit you refer to, I really, really liked the idea of. It was the execution of it, mm. I think, that fell flat for me. I think it could have been amazing with slightly tighter writing, but as it happens, it left me feeling a little bit disappointed. There are some moments that I think aim for awe and just feel a little bit too CGE. Um, and and I, I'm with you, James. Like, and, and I think Katie as well. Like, I'm very there in theory for that kind of magical Marvel uh, oh God, side yeah. of things, and 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 that kind of um, you know over the top kind of element. I just don't think this walks the line as successfully as something even like Thor did between mm. marrying real world and kind of crazy fantastical stuff. That said, we have not talked nearly enough about Tony Leung um, no. uh, because I think he is astonishing here. I am so pleased to see him in a big American movie um, because, quite frankly, all the American actors should be as much in awe of him as as all every single Asian actor in this movie was. And the amount he can say with just like a glance to one side, he's amazing. Mm, he uh, so really I absolutely loved him. For once, I loved the daddy issues. I was here for it. <laughs> I mean, this is Daddy Issues the movie, isn't it? It is yeah. Daddy Issues the movie, yeah. Um, but I just, I thought their their interplay was really well done. And the fact that there was a sister there as well, and there was that additional element, it was a little bit underdeveloped. But Monger Zhang's character as well gets, you know, some interplay with him. There is There are issues there that she has to work through as well. So it's not all about uh, father and son, uh, which, which I liked. And I think they did work very hard, it seemed like, on giving him frankly material worthy of his time which kind of helped the film they don't try to entirely redeem him they don't give him an overly sympathetic bad guy arc but they also do make him give him enough humanity to be interesting and so i thought that was a fine line to walk and i did love some of the big over-the-top magical stuff uh there are elements in this film that are very much my jam I just feel like um, Des and Daniel Cretton maybe didn't do quite as good a job as some of the previous Marvel directors have done of marrying that kind of real world tone to that fantastical tone. There's a very marked, almost jarring shift from one to the other at times in this movie. And and I, I felt like there, were, there was probably a way to just make that flow a little bit more than it does. Maybe it mm-hmm. isn't meant to, but it, 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 it did kind of take me out of the movie for a little bit. Props to them, though, for finding incredibly inventive things to do with a man who, let's be honest, his power is that he owns a number of bracelets. Uh, but they do very, very cool things. And mm. I thought they shared a lot of sort of ingenuity in, in, in working out the fight sequences with the rings. I also, what I really enjoyed about Shang-Chi, because there was a lot about Asian culture and Asian mm. identity throughout the film. It didn't dissuade the fact that it was a, just a Marvel film. It was a Marvel film ce- celebrating Asian culture, Asian identities, and having the little moments littered throughout, like you have the bamboo, yeah, the bamboo fights and stuff, and the martial arts is one thing, but then you have the smaller things, like referring to Chinese names, the shoes before you enter at someone's home, even burning incense to to commemorate your your loved mm. ones. Those are the kind of things that I always look out for because. People know about them, but they don't see them. They don't know the depths of the emotional depths of them until you see them in person. And that's what I kind of take, I took away from Shang-Chi. I thought that stuff was terrific. I think it, it shows us a new side of the MCU, which is uh, really great. Um, we haven't talked enough about Simu Liu either, I mm. think is a, a, a real discovery. Um, you know, say discovery, he's been in Kim's Convenience for five seasons, <laughs> but for everyone who hasn't seen 
Kim's convenience. He's a real discovery. He's got a lot of charisma, a lot of charm, a lot of swagger, um, can handle the fight stuff. Uh, yeah. pretty damn well uh, also. You could instantly see him standing next to the other Avengers. I mean, he just he just owned the screen immediately. Ted is um, very likable persona. Really likable, yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm more up on it than you guys are. Um, naturally, be a Marvel shill. But uh, I, I, I do see where you're coming from. I think the first hour and a half, the first two acts of this movie... I was thinking this is knocking on the door of my MCU top 10. This is, you know, there's a, you know, number 10 is usually up for grabs. There's a rotating, revolving number 10 for me. Sometimes it'll be Doctor Strange. Sometimes it'll be Black Panther. Sometimes it'll be one of the Spider-Mans. Sometimes it'll be Guardians 2. And they just kind of revolve just, you know, they're in orbit around number 10. And then I think um, Shang-Chi definitely was orbiting number 10. Then the final act is deliberately more sedate mm. than everything that's come before because it is quite breakneck. I don't want to obviously get too much into it uh, here, but I have seen it twice now. And the second time, once you know that, once you plug into the rhythms, and this should not be required of every single film, like you go see it twice, by the way. Um, it should work first time around. But I think it will for a lot of people. But the second time around, once I, once I realized where it was going, once I plugged into its particular rhythms, then uh, I was able to appreciate more the, the, the final mm confrontations shall we say and uh enjoyed what uh, what cretin was trying to do and uh just succeeded more for me the second time around but uh so it's not quite on the surface of it in my mcu top 10 um which again you know i know some people might but we're 25 films into the mcu by now so there is there is enough great films here to have a top 10 and not being in that top 10 mm. is not shameful no yeah, it's around there. It's around 10, 11, 12, 13. Uh, very, very strong stuff and a very, very strong start, I would say, to Shang-Chi. And to be clear, I'm not hating on it at all. I mm-hmm. I really, really liked it, but I, I do think it is yeah, worth mentioning those those kind of drawbacks that I had. But like, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, I absolutely agree with you on, on Simu Liu. Aquafina is always fun, like always. Oh, she's great. She's um, so great. You know, some of the smaller characters, I mean, we, we've seen Wong in the, in the trailer, so I don't think that's a spoiler to mention that he's in it, but like, it's always a good time when he turns up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's great things in here, and Tony Lung and Michelle Yeoh's in the trailer as well. These are great people. So uh, it's mm-hmm. there's so much to enjoy here. I just, um, yeah, it was it was short of similarly my Marvel top ten, um, but you know it's made the top twenty. So that's the main thing, right? <laughs> what is the bottom five? And are we counting? The TV shows now as well, because no. I've oh. expanded it to 29. We'll be here all day if you include we the TV shows. Yeah. No, just in terms of, well, it's um, for me, I mean, you know, Guardians is in my bottom five. Uh, Guardians 2, Guardians, Guardians 2, Guardians 2, Guardians 2. Yeah, Guardians 2 is... Guardians 2 is in my bottom five. Thor 2, yeah. uh, Iron Man 2, and Incredible Hulk. How many is that? Four? Ant-Man and the Wasp. And Ant-Man and the Wasp. Okay, that's my bottom five. Just just nonsense. Just absolute drivel, drivel, drivel and nonsense. Uh, What is my bottom five? Katie, what's your bottom five MCU films? I I think it's probably the same as Hans, to be honest. Yeah, Yeah. because it's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you paid Katie beforehand? Because she was on board with your Lion King, Mm anti-Lion King rhetoric as well. That's right. Yeah. Look, Katie is a woman of taste and discernment. What can I tell you? Yeah. Mm. Jimbo, what's your bottom five MCU? Uh, definitely, it's, it's. I think it's exactly the same thing. I think it would be, oh. it'd be my absolute. But I mean, Incredible Hulk is obviously the absolute worst. I don't think there's anywhere around that. But I think Iron Man Two is knocking on the door there, and then I think Ant Man and the Wasp is probably next up for me. 
maybe then Guardians 2. Guardians 2 has lovely moments in it. It's just, it's the B plot, which is the best thing, and the A plot just leaves me cold. All the ego stuff I can't, I can't stand. Uh, Thor The Dark World, I've got a lot of time for. Like, it's not good by any stretch of the imagination, and it probably is on a pure quality point of view, quite low down. But, but th- that's the thing, like, we talk, we talk about bottom five. Like, I could watch any of these films again and again and again, with the possible exception of Incredible Hulk. Because um, they're all, mm. they're all great to me, even the ones that yeah. are obviously less great. Mm. I don't have a bottom five. I just have a joint <laughs> number one. Uh, it's all of them. Nerd. That's what I have. Uh, so let's move, swift, let's move swiftly on to Annette, uh, shall we? Oh, we should probably say what we gave it. Uh, yeah. Four stars. We gave four stars and four to rings. Shang-Chi and the legend of the four stars. Uh, we gave ten rings to Shang-Chi. Uh, next up is a Annette. Hell's Bells. I love this film so much. Uh, I, I yeah, this is this is great. This is Leos Carax, who of course made Holy Motors, a film that I absolutely do not understand and was still fascinated to watch a few years ago. Uh, he is back, back, back with a musical by Sparks. So they were both in Cannes at the same time a few years ago. Uh, they were mutual fans of one another and um, and basically decided to work together. And this is the result. So it is the story of a stand-up comedian played by Adam Driver and his opera singer, Mrs., played by Marion Cotillard. And they love each other so much as they sing in one of the songs. All seems perfect in their world. They have a baby daughter. This may be the first musical to have uh, musical numbers during both sex and childbirth, which I think uh, is worthy of mention. Um, But in any case, their very unusual child is born. Uh, And then violence intrudes on their world. And I won't say too much more than that about the plot. But it is bizarre. Uh, It's strange. It's slightly unreal uh, by design. Uh, not just in terms of, you know, it, it starts off in a musical studio with Sparks and the cast and Leos Carax all singing a song going, may we start, and then cuts to the action of the movie. So there's a, there's a, a conscious artificiality about this entire thing, even before we get into, you know, uh, like a storm at sea that's shot against green screen and, and you know, almost animated looking. It is deliberately artificial. And yet there's a sort of real sense of emotion to it. It's big kind of operatic emotion, but it really worked for me. I liked it the first time I watched it. I loved it the second time I watched it. It may be because the Spark songs are extremely catchy and really got stuck in my head and have remained there ever since. But it's just kind of magic in a weird way. Do go in with your weird tolerance turned up to 11, please. But yeah, (laughs) loved it. Or 75. Or 70, or just like, yeah. you know, 604.1. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. This is another film that benefited for me from a second viewing this mm. week, uh, I must say. First viewing, and again, I didn't see this in uh, remotely the way that Laos Carrix or Sparks or anyone involved intended, which was on a computer screen late at night. But um, th- I was infuriated by it and beguiled by it in equal measure on mm. that first go round, and that there were things I was just, going, oh come on, really, really, oh this is this is just this is being weird for weird's sake. Naturally, <laughs> given the sparks <laughs> and Leos Carrick's, and then there are moments that are just really enchanting, mm. cinematically speaking. I love the opening sequence. I think the opening sequence is glorious. Yeah, 
There's wonderful stuff. There's a great sequence with Simon Helberg, who's in it uh, as well and is tremendous uh, as an accompanist uh, who gets involved with um, with the the couple as well. Just wonderful moments that are just exhilarating, mm. exhilarating. And uh, but then there are moments that they're deliberately there to test your patience, which is you know Adam <laughs> Driver's stand up, who I think looks like no stand up has looked. Certainly no British stand up. He's not playing a British stand up, but no, no British stand up comedian looks like Adam Driver looks in this, where he takes the stage with a rippling six pack. There may be some <laughs> American comedians who take care of themselves, but uh, but over here, yeah, I think there's a there's a weird uh, dichotomy where he's. On one hand, you know, eating bananas and looking like a boxer, and on the other one, you know, smoking cigarettes yeah. compulsively. So he's a yeah. he is a deliberately contradictory character, a very difficult character to, spend to time like. With. Yeah, without getting into any kind of spoilers, yes. but like stuff like his um his comic comedy routine where he's kind of mm-hmm. semi singing his routine, and even the hecklers are kind of chiming in on time. I, I thought that yes. was brilliantly, brilliantly done. But he's challenging his audience and uh-huh. he has contempt for his audience and he is basically, you know, saying to them, Can you I hate you, can you stick with me? Are you worthy of even watching me? And it feels sometimes that there's a little bit of a gauntlet being thrown down thrown down to the audience as well. But second time around, those things, those little speed bumps dissolved for mm-hmm. me. We gave this one five stars. Yeah. Five stars then for Annette. And last but least this week is Cinderella. Hell's Bells, you're on Cinderella duty once again. This oh. is a movie I said earlier on was cast by Tom Bola. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a little unconventional. Um, it stars uh, Camilla Cabello as the titular Cinderella. She is, of course, a pop star. People may be familiar with her. I know Chris wasn't because we had a discussion about this online. Yeah, I, I walked into, we, my wife and I went to Stratford the other day, went Westfield Stratford, and there was a big marquee for this outside. And I went, oh my God, they've put that... You know, the girl who's playing Cinderella, her name is above the title and follow was like, she's really famous. I was like, oh, what? <laughs> she was part <laughs> of no idea. She was part of Fifth Harmony before going solo, Chris. I have since Googled her on the yeah, old Wikipedia. She is, she's yes. very good. Anyway, so she lives with her wicked stepmother who is played by the wickedly talented hmm. Idina wickedly Menzel. talented. One and only <laughs> Adele Dessine. <laughs> um, and uh, lives with her two bumbling stepsisters. But she dreams of opening her own business and becoming a dress designer, not of marrying a prince or anything like it. No, no. She wants to open her business and become a dress designer. So it is a great inconvenience when she falls for a handsome prince, played by Nicholas uh, Galitzin, um, who is honestly very bad in this movie. I, I'm, I'm sure he's wonderful generally, but he is very, very bad here. Anyway, this is all done to music. This is all happening as a musical, mostly a pop musical with songs taken from life, uh, many of them from the 90s, which maybe is not surprising given the involvement of writer-director Kay Cannon, who of course started off with the Pitch Perfect movies. Uh, but it's a weird choice of music. Like I'm not sure that many people who grew up on Rhythm Nation are, are necessarily in the target audience for this film. Perhaps their kids are, but not so much the original fans of Rhythm Nation. So mixing in uh, the White Stripes with salt and pepper also a little odd to me. But the worst mistake musically is surely getting Pierce Brosnan to sing again. Um, he plays the king of the kingdom. Uh, Minnie Driver is his wife. I, I'm not sure what they were thinking there, but I wish they hadn't. I think it's lovely. It's a GoldenEye reunion, and I really like that. It, it, I did love that it was, I did spot that it was a GoldenEye reunion. I enjoyed that. But I mean, she needed her cowboy hat to really sell that, and they didn't, she did. they didn't have she it. She does stand by her man. That's true. Well, spoiler. 
I mean, as as much as such a thing exists. As much as you could spoil Cinderella. Yeah, um, Billy Porter is the fairy godmother. Uh, a real problem there is that his gown is far more fabulous than anything Cinderella wears. And I, I regret <laughs> to inform you, I regret to inform you that this is all based on an idea by James Corden, who turns up as one of the mice. So look, it's not good. It is going to work maybe for the seven-year-old girls it's aimed at. There are a couple of good uh, jokes that I think will will keep the the adults entertained, and I genuinely think that Cabello is good. I think she is mm-hmm. fun she and is. sparky and perky, and could go on to good things. I, I'm not sure that this is the good things that she's going on to, and and I do yeah. kind of wish for better. I think I think the the prince casting is honestly the biggest problem for me. I think he's a real wet yeah. blanket every time he's on screen. I agree with you. Camille Cabello is is good. She's sparky. She's fun. She has she carries some of the film's more self-aware, slightly more cynical moments mm. very, very nicely. Uh, I have an issue with pretty much everything else. I I think, you know, it calls into mind obviously a night's tale and it's a mix of modern pop songs and a very classical setting, but not directed or presented with any of the panache of that movie or the or the vibrancy of any of, of that movie. A lot of it just feels really cynical and by the numbers and not particularly well presented. So Two stars, I think, is absolutely mm. on the money for this one. Two stars for Cinderella. She will not go to the ball. Anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We will be doing a show next week, and we're going to be joined by Philida Lloyd and Claire Dunn, the director and star of the excellent film Herself. And hopefully, because it hasn't happened yet, we're trying to lock it down Gerard Butler will be returning to the podcast to talk about the madness of Cop Shop, the new Joe Carnahan film. So very, very much hope that we can get that one over the line because it's always fun having Jerry Butler back on the Empire podcast. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Good squadcast names this week. Good squadcast names this week. Uh, Katie. You were challenged last week coming up with a squadcast name because you you came in late and you you didn't have one and it was it was just a, a horrible mess. But we won't yeah, talk about it. Yeah, it was pretty lame. It was bad. It was very very bad. Oh but God. this week you have gone for Katie will return in twenty twenty two. Yes, did um, celebrate. It can't coincide the delayed releases for next year as well as the famous end card on the, all the James Bond films, most of the James Bond films. Sorry, mm-hmm. and the MCU as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Katie has now been pushed back to 2023. I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> just the, the news came in just as you were saying that. Very, very sad. Um, Don Long COVID. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it is also goodbye from Maverick Interrupted. And given how much he has been yeah. kicked off during this recording, that is a very, very apt screen name, James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris. Yes, it works on multiple levels, in fact. Not only Top Gun, but myself, I'm due to be delayed again and again. By my mm-hmm. band. Indeed. It is goodbye also from Sparks Life. Confidence can be the profession of it's the. It's a preference it? for the habitual preference. voyeur of what is known as. Sparks Life! <laughs> Toodaloo. Helen O'Hara. There she goes. Who knew I knew those lyrics? I did not know those lyrics at all. No, you did not. It was embarrassing for you. A morning soup can be avoided if you take go straight ra- through take what a is known as. Oh, for what fuck's known sake! <laughs> Uh, Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Something, 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 something. He gets a sense of enormous well-being. He feeds the pigeons, remember? Sparks life! I can almost remember the lyrics, but it's it's all a blur. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. <laughs>
Uh, I woke up this morning, had a nice uh, bowl of uh, all barn. Anyway, too late. Go Bye. <laughs> Let's go. Bye. Yes, it's goodbye for me as well. The legend of the 10 Ringos. I'm off to inject ivermectin into my all barn. It gives me a sense of enormous well-being. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Sparks Life!